I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We Love to Watch knows that Montezuma's Revenge is nothing more than good old-fashioned American diarrhea. It's true. That's what it is. It's actually not. It's, uh, it's someone who's got it. It's food poisoning. Hmm. Uh, I mean, you're you saying Fred get, Willard is not to be trusted in the Christopher He's not. Gaspard. No, not a good travel agent. You can see why they shut down the whole industry after a while. But uh, it's true. I got uh, uh, I got food poisoning uh, in my honeymoon in Mexico, actually, and uh, was out for like three days. Um, diarrhea was part of it, as was everything else you can imagine. Um, and that is apparently Montezuma's revenge. And thankfully, my doctor was nice enough to prescribe me uh, heavy antibiotics for it. And that did help and allowed me to continue on with the honeymoon. Um, but I'll say third day food poisoning on your honeymoon, nothing gets more romantic than that. It is a really good just last chance to find out if you want to annul that marriage because – yeah. Uh, if you can't get through food poisoning together, which is a very intimate activity, like you can hide a lot of grossness from your partner yeah. through dating. Um, but once you get to food poisoning, it's all bets are off, especially uh, if you have to share one bathroom. Yeah, like it was very much a thank God we paid for this spacious bathroom because I live here now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we got food poisoning. I assume it was just like old chicken. Um, I don't actually know, but uh, my wife and I both got food poisoning the same night in our tiny, uh, tiny Chicago apartment, and uh, we had to obviously share a bathroom because it was a one bed, one yeah. bath, and uh, never, never had our relationship uh, received <laughs> such a test, and we we passed. That I mean, that is insane. That is a test. I will tell you, it it was one of those things. Where we're in Mexico, and like our second day, we did one of those big. Like outdoor resort things with like, um, it's like, uh, like, uh, Toxicola or something where it has water slides and pools and buffets and bars and shows and snorkeling and, uh, you know, uh, uh, stuff like that. And like they have all these like, you know, big open air buffets and stuff like that. And there's party that's like, I mean, it's a hundred degrees. It's kind of crazy that you can just eat this open air buffet food and it's fine. Uh, <laughs> It's not. It cannot be. <laughs> Even if you're avoiding the stuff you're supposed to avoid, uh, it cannot be okay. Is what I learned the hard way. But what a what a terrible start to this episode. Um, although uh, it would be something that Fred Willard would try to dissuade me from from changing any future travel plans <laughs> over that incident. So I guess it, it fits in that regard. But yeah, where we love to watch a movie podcast, we pick a theme, we do movies over the course of that month around that theme. But if we remember, we compare and contrast. Easy this month, because we're in our second week of Be Our Guest Month, where we're going through the mockumentaries of one Christopher guest. Uh, And this actually is our first week of, like, true Christopher guest movies. We started last week with Spinal Tap, which he wrote, starred in, but, you know, directed by Rob Reiner, 
uh, uh, co-written by Rob Reiner, Guest, and Sheer, and Michael McKean. The rest is Final Tap. And this is uh, – we're doing Waiting for Guffman, which is his, his uh, second directorial effort um, and kind of his first – his kind of return after a few notable failures, which we'll talk about a little bit, uh, his return to the – arena of mockumentary at a time when obviously Rob Reiner and a lot of people had left that uh, that far behind. Uh, we're also going to cover today, so I mentioned it's the second directorial movie. I watched The Big Picture. We'll talk a little bit about that as it, when it comes to table setting, but not going to necessarily do it. And then you may go um, weir- weirdly, we're also going to be talking about Mascots, which is his last movie that he's directed to date. Uh, that that came out in 2017, I believe. Um, either was like premiered at film festivals in 2017 and came out in 2018. I, but I think it was no, it was 2017, 100 percent 2017. Um, and the reason I know that this is 100 percent true and not on purpose, Peter, uh, I watched it on my uh, redo honeymoon <laughs> um, because of the the food poisoning uh, and uh, and the rain that then occurred after the food poisoning was over. We went back to Mexico about two years later, uh, and I watched Mascots. Weirdly, uh, that is just uh, uh, odd, odd serendipity. Um, <laughs> so, like, but- Christopher Gust is uh, weirdly associated um, with uh, the way that uh, your, your intestinal tract has guided your life decisions. We are going to talk a little bit about Mascots, and here's why. Next week, we're doing Best in Show. We're ending this series where it feels right on A Mighty Wind, which in some ways is almost a bookend with Spinal Tap in a lot of ways, both sending up a a music genre in a mockumentary format. It reunites Spinal Tap in a lot of ways as as the folksman. Talk way more about that in a couple weeks here. But also it really ends kind of the guest arc on this very uh, less cutting, less biting uh, but but very like uh, you know heart heart wrenching and emotional arc. So that's where it makes sense to end. But it felt weird if we're doing every other guest related mockumentary to skip his comeback movie uh, mascots. And there's also a like tissue of connection here uh, by the fact that uh, uh, it almost serves as a sidequel in some ways to. Waiting for Guffman because Corky St. Clair is in uh, who uh, who is who is the lead ostensibly in Waiting for Guffman, uh, the Christopher Guest character he plays in the movie we'll be talking about today. Uh, he makes a return of sorts, quote yeah. unquote, of sorts in in mascots, uh, somewhat ineffectually. It, it, it's it's uh, it's definitely cameo level. Um, this is not uh, quite a sequel. To waiting for Guffman, we don't actually find that much about Corky and and what's happened to him since. Um, no. We get like brief little flashes, uh, and w- 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 I wanted to fit it into this uh, this uh, particular episode and make this a double episode because uh, I I thought it would be better for us to park off a lot of time to talk about Corky and sort of what this this whole deal is tr- this whole deal with waiting for Guffman is trying to accomplish. And then use some of the spare time at the end to talk about how Mascots is a film that's sort of aping his previous work. And he did that in a most obvious way by bringing Corky back. Um, That's that's such an obvious callback that's supposed to make people go crazy. But instead, uh, critics, um, 
the casual viewers like myself were, uh, saw it and went, oh yeah, that's the guy from Waiting for Guffman. Anyways. Weirdly ineffectual. All of mascots is kind of this, this shrug, but also it weirdly... Uh, it, it brings back Corky in almost like a cynical way and then misses a chance to have it mean something in like the most obvious way. We'll, we'll talk about that. It's it's super bizarre, but I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say that we're covering Waiting for Guffin and Mascots. I feel like Mascots, it's like a, it's, it's not a double episode. It feels like a 1.25 episode because I do want to spend a lot of time uh, with Guffman and Mascots is, is definitely not a movie deserving of uh, – an hour, but definitely deserving as we talk about Christopher Guest, I think of like 20, 20, 30 minutes. Yeah. 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 Um, it will not be a full, uh, three hour episode, including mascots, uh, which I think, uh, no one will complain about. Uh, uh no. <laughs> so let's, let's talk a little bit where we left off with Guest, right? So he does spinal tap, uh, McKean, Guest, and Shira all kind of then like, you know, swim around the periphery of Saturday Night Live for a little bit. Um, I think Guest is on it for a season, I want to say. Yeah, they, um, did a, they did a goofy season that involved a lot of already established – SNL's yes. deal is they like to establish people or they like yeah. to pluck people that are kind of up-and-coming stand-up or improv stars. Um, yeah. For instance, Eddie Murphy was an up-and-coming stand-up. He would have been huge anyways, um, but they yeah. made him into a superstar very, very fast. Very, very fucking fast. Um, yeah, it's the season where they had like Martin Short after SCTV. They had Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. Right. Even in the – in like, you know, they would usually – even even like Bobby Moynihan who was like already kind of established within an improv scene and people knew from like YouTube and particularly like Derek Comedy stuff. They were like, we're going to pluck him up and make him into a much bigger star now or he's our next uh, Horatio Sands or whatever. Um, and th- that season they had like a – yeah, like an all-star season and that's like how Michael McKean ended up uh, – Michael McKean ended up, uh, you know, being on – SNL, Best in Show, like, these guys ended up being comedy legends um, because of Spinal Tap's uh, reputation. That, that spi- Oh, and uh, you know what? So, Guest was on the 80s. I do have my dates wrong a little, uh, weirdly. So, McKean hosts a few times in the 80s, which is notably one time when, when Guest is on the show and McKean's the host in 84 – that's when they come up with their Mighty Wind characters. They do uh, they do the Folksman. Got it, um, yes. But weirdly, I, that Michael McKean then was a cast member for one season in 94 to 95? It's strange. Yeah. Well, Lorne Weird. Michaels like, came I, back and did – Lorne Michaels came back after being ousted and uh, had some wild and crazy ideas. Yeah, but he came back in like 88. McKean in 94 is such an odd. I mean, I remember seeing him on Saturday Night Live. That's like pre, that's like the year before Will Ferrell. I just, I didn't realize it was that late. But, um, but anyways, so, you know, uh, McKean obviously ends up, uh, he I mean, he's hosting in the 80s Saturday Night Live. He's doing stuff like Clue and other things. Sheer isn't doing as much stuff, but obviously he's about to get really big here in uh, the late 80s, and early rich. 90s by being and very rich <laughs> um, by uh, joining the cast of a, uh, a little Tracy Ullman short, uh, animated short show called The Simpsons. Um, and Guest decides to kind of try his hand at, uh, at direct, writing and directing. Um, Guest is, we, we haven't talked about this yet, uh, we talk about this a little bit next week, but we, we might as well park here. Guest as like a individual, 
um, is is uh, a very odd duck in comedy in that he is uh, very much not a funny person in real life. He has seemingly minimal to no sense of humor in real life. Um, and actually, I don't even feel like that is like gossipy stuff. He has said in interviews on like Tonight Show that he doesn't consider himself a funny person. He doesn't particularly like like comedies or he doesn't joke around at all. He is someone who has a talent in characterizations, impressions, creating these off-the-wall characters and writing funny things but it's something that he sees literally as a a job in the same way that, you know, Peter, you're probably not going and doing like project management. Well, you might be doing some project management at home. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's things that could be considered a low-level type of project management at home or in my case, like dealing with upset clients, in that case, my children or, or my spouse <laughs> or, or my friends or something like that. But like um, – No. No, I'd say <laughs> – Mostly, it's a thing I do for money. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. So, in that, I guess in our analogy, Christopher Guest, like, may tell Jamie Lee Curtis a joke if it's her birthday and, like, someone needs to make her laugh. But, like, for him, that constitutes bringing his work home with him, I guess. Um but yeah, I mean, he obviously he stars in the Princess Bride with uh, with Rob Reiner, which is essentially his outside of his own movies, his like most notable acting job outside of Spinal Tap as well, of course. Embarrassingly, um, I only realized that that was Christopher Guest when I recently rewatched this movie. I've seen a hundred times, and I've seen Best in Show uh, three hundred times. It was only recently where I rewatched Princess Bride, and I was like. Wait, what? That was him? <laughs> well, it's one of those things that you just see, like, you know, it's 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 a movie that, like, if you watch things enough as a kid, like, it can take a while to be like, oh, an actor played that role? <laughs> like, you yeah, know, that's I just, just thought that was Montoya. him. Yeah. That's not yeah. a, a famous actor of stage and screen. Yeah. Um, so... He here's but so the thing about him is that he again he is not necessarily a, a a funny guy and he has a lot of people have always said a little bit of a uh, a chip on his shoulder when it comes to the show business um and the art of sh- uh, art of show I guess is what I was gonna say but like he and I think part of that if I'm gonna intuit two parts of thing uh, of like his personality that we know and just make a hypothesis that could 100% be wrong it seems like um, in general even if you that that Hollywood and show business and all that stuff is just a fucking merciless industry that's not telling tales out of school there's a lot of stuff that uh, you know that uh that's that's like half it's like a mini genre in hollywood about how bad hollywood is which i'll talk about in just a second um but i can imagine that that stuff is more like personally infuriating and frustrating if you uh don't have a sense of humor i think a lot of us you could call it some sort of weird like toxic way a way to deal with toxicity but like there is a, there's an element i think that i have when i have frustration at work personal life whatever else it is where you kind of laugh it off and and someone who very much specifically has said he's not a he's not a person who like sees humor in life in any capacity probably gets a little bit more uh frustrated by some of the some of the challenges and ridiculousness that show business uh entails and so that's why he made he, he made his his first movie is like is that it is a very like angry venomous movie 
uh, about uh, it's called The Big Picture. Came out in 1989. Not a mockumentary. Stars Kevin Bacon. Uh, you do like see uh, uh, Sheer and McKean in little bit parts here and there. And Kevin Bacon essentially plays this guy who wins a student film competition and starts working with a studio. And it's this super, art, you know, super arty, black and white divorce drama, third wheel drama set in a cabin in black and white with winter. And as the studio starts, uh, starts tweaking it. Um, it becomes a um, becomes more and more into this almost like teen sex comedy, right? By about halfway through, and as he's losing his direction and his art in the movie, he starts, you know, getting sucked up in the Hollywood machine. He ends up breaking up with his long term girlfriend. He ends up, uh, you know. Uh, his best friend, who's played by Michael McKean, who's a cinematographer around town that he promised a chance to shoot his movie. He ends up firing for whoever the studio has, soundtrack choices, editing choices, blah, blah, blah. They're about to shoot the movie and the studio head gets replaced uh, and all all the movies on the docket get canceled. And um, as uh, as Kevin Bacon tries to go to the new studio head and save his movie, he's pitching it. In that old, like, instead of like going back to, hey, now I can make the movie I always wanted to, he's like, it's a sex comedy, it's a ghost sex comedy, whatever you want. Like, he's, you know, and the new studio head is kind of looking at him like a crazy person. So he starts, um, uh, he starts, uh, he loses everything, right? He ends up, uh, like waiting tables at, uh, at this, uh, at this, uh, bar where he's like where you know the the joke of like oh you're a director our busboy is a director um that type of thing and then uh he ends up meeting up with a, one of the co-people who did the who got like second place in the in the student award things and they shoot a music video and someone sees it and they get excited that he did it think it's really good and he decides to reunite with his girlfriend he goes out to the woods for a couple days doesn't answer his phone calls by the time he comes back the entire um the entire uh, studio system because they can't get a hold of him and everyone's really hot for him and everyone keeps trying to one-up with offers is ready to give him whatever he wants to make his movie. And the end of the movie is that he makes the movie that he wants to um, by uh, kind of uh, accidentally uh, removing himself from the Hollywood system. They all fumble over him. It is uh, barely a comedy. Uh, it is uh, – it's mostly a drama it it is very much almost like earnestly embarrassing about the young artist who uh has to compromise his his artistic vision to go along with hollywood and then he uh you know his whole personality gets inside out and like has a victory in a moment of him demanding the studios i'm not going to make any more compromises anymore like it it's a very odd movie and there's there's better versions of like this type of attitude that come out after this like there's so um, there's so many better uh sticking a middle finger up to hollywood movies like 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 uh barton fink barton fink the player which i know you said you haven't seen but like um you know it like it's not that i that um i don't think that this type of movie like it's eye rolling in in concept because it obviously Barton Fink is one of my favorite Coen Brothers movies. Like that's a really good movie about like how shitty the studio system and empty the studio system is. This, as you can see, feels like some weird fantasy about 
uh, I'm not going to compromise and I'm going to like, again, it's not making fun of our protagonist until he sells out his volumes. It's barely funny. Um, and then unlike a lot of Christopher Guest movies, like he gets all his victory by sticking to his guns at the end. He gets to make the movie he wanted. Like it feels more like a weird journal entry to make some like some uh, fired screenwriter feel better about himself for that day than like a movie that got made. <laughs> yeah, he took uh, write what you know um, and he just stopped there. It's like write what you know. And then he's like, well, I don't have to make it actually appealing to audiences, do I? It reminds me a little of um, when I when I really turned on Kevin Smith. That that, that could be a whole a I whole know. month. Is like you us gradually going from Kevin Smith as a genius to do I want to watch anything he's made, even though it's on a streaming service and ready for me yeah. at any point? I know I I haven't seen much from him since I saw this, but he did those like ill advised stand up specials, which I think early were like conversation with Kevin Smith. I really liked. I really liked the first one. The first one's great. I never saw any of them until Burn in Hell, which is like his third or fourth, came out, and um, I watched it. And that's I really turned on him pretty hard after that. Like <laughs> I, I don't think I've watched one of his movies since then because the whole last thirty minutes is like the self aggrieved. Like uh, he, it's it's the one where he goes on and on about um, how dare the critics malign cop out and. Uh, how, like, this friend who, as far as we know, is imaginary is, like, heaping praise on him for making real art with um, Red State and how he learned that, like, he's never going to let a critic tell me because I went from cop-out and I needed to make that to make true art like Red. Like, it was, like, the worst kind of, like, how dare anyone ever criticize me. And it felt so, like, at the time, it, like, just felt so, like, your whole thing has been Gen X shitting on boomer culture and, the, like, you shit on everything. Like, you have characters in movies that are standing for you riffing about how, like, you know, this is stupid and this pop culture is stupid. You write comic books. You do a podcast. You've always been as much a critic, almost like a pop culture critic as you have a filmmaker. And the idea that, like, cop out a movie that, like, no one thinks is good. The fact that critics wrote bad reviews about it made you like decide. Like it, it was like I don't. I don't know if you've seen it, Peter. I saw the I, first one um, okay. and the second one, and the first one was was great. It was revelatory. Like the first one is the first. That's one what, is, that's where he's talking about, like Wild Wild West. And stuff, I've seen right? it. I've seen the first one a few times. It was very inspiring to kind of see a a filmmaker be so raw, but also humble, like. He was, he's making fun of himself a lot. Yeah. And he's not uh, he's not pretending he's some great artist. Like he's mostly just like he's like, yeah, I make I make comedies about about dick jokes and I try and infuse my comedies with my political sensibilities because I think that's my responsibility. And there's yeah. long diatribes about crazy shit he's seen in Hollywood. And like he's still very much a guy trying to like work within the system as opposed to now he's an independent artist who <clears throat> Gets his stuff done. Like, he's he's done crowdfunding. He's worked yeah. with smaller independent studios. Like, he's 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 sort of living his dream, and he can't produce anything. It's sort of like an... It's, it's very... I, we could do an entire month on, on Kevin Smith. I wouldn't want to, but we could do an entire month on Kevin Smith no. where uh, you can compare the track of Kevin Smith and George Lucas, um, where, where it's like... 
I just need to be liberated from these people. I need to just, you know, talk to the fans directly and use my own money. And then they start using their own money. <laughs> and then the, the art that comes out is just like not that interesting. Like, well, and I you're think liberated. Also, oh, I'm not actually liberated. Like not to dwell too much on this, but like this actually bothers me in a way it doesn't with like Lucas or even Gas necessarily. But um it's the fact like Kevin Smith's whole sales as like sell to everyone is that he he's uh able to call to call a spade a spade so to speak and like you know he'll he's self-deprecating and all this sort of stuff and like he knows that he makes silly goofy movies and you know i remember watching commentaries and he'd always laugh at like what a bad filmmaker he was and how he couldn't set up a shot to save his life but that's the way he's able like he can direct you know blah 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 and it's like oh like seeing Burn in Hell, at the very least, was also like, oh, you were full of shit. Like, this whole, um, you know, self-deprecating, um, appreciates criticism, like, you are just completely full of shit. You just didn't have, like, you didn't have a way to express that. You are kind of, in some ways, a bully who, like a bully, when they're picked on back, attacks back in a very weird aggressive way like naming critics who gave your movie a bad review because they liked one of your other movies a movie that everyone kind of was like oh this is a shitty studio <laughs> movie like it like the whole thing soured me and I, I'm I, I, not just to plant on that but like watching the big picture felt like to me like the Kevin Smith of those last 30 minutes of Kevin Smith burning hell is like that is what is like that that's what made this movie. Like, it has that tenor of, like, nothing's all that interesting and nothing's that cutting and biting because Kevin Ge or Christopher Guest just wants to tell the story of an artist uh, being punished for compromising and getting success when he sticks to his guns. And, like, uh, as, like, a self-realization fantasy. So, it's it's really unsuccessful. The, the, the most interesting thing about that movie is uh, what happened to it because it feels like that is the like what happened to the movie is actually the showbiz comedy I want to see the making of the big picture. So he makes this movie with this about a studio, you know, the the kind of the plot hinges on a studio head getting replaced and everything getting canceled. And right as this movie was about to release, um, I think it was Warner Brothers who was producing it. Uh, the studio head gets fired. <laughs> And they look at the movies like this one on the docket about a studio head getting fired and movies not going out. And they're like, I don't want to release this. Uh, and so they bury it. It releases to a couple film festivals, basically never really goes wide, makes less than $100,000 at the box office. And it's something that like literally, even though it got a, a few good reviews when it was released, is something that people eventually discovered on like VHS. And not even discovered, more like... After Waiting for Goffman came out, some people were like, oh, weird, he directed this other movie. Yeah, and which which I think kind of takes us nicely to um, how Waiting for Goffman, which was made, which is made, um, which is a nice stitching between uh, the Rob Reiner, this is Spinal Tap era of guest and the Waiting for Goffman through... Uh, Mighty Wind era, because those three movies were all produced by um, Rob Reiner's Castle Rock, um, which is something that I didn't catch until like I didn't catch the connection. I I, I kind of like in my head, I knew these two pieces of information, but I didn't like connect them in my head that like 
him and Rob Reiner still stayed friendly, uh, and Rip and Rob Reiner uh, was 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 a man who, by the time, so by the time Rob Reiner and Castle Rock uh, came along, or I guess not by the time Castle Rock came along, but by the time Rob Reiner and Castle Rock came along to guest for uh, Best in Show. Uh, sorry for waiting for Guffman. Uh, he had had his entire career arc that we've discussed, which yeah. is uh, in previous. Yeah, episodes, that, which is it's the, crazy, right? Like where we talk about how ninety four he does North. Yeah, and then two and years breaks. later, waiting for Guffman, and there's a yeah. bunch of movies in between. Some of them, some of them, re- like really, really well respected, like Lone Star. Um, some of them completely like loathed, um, like Dracula Dead and Loving It. Um, and he did some Shakespeare stuff that's like, you know, it's like he did some Walter Matthau, uh, Walter Matthau uh, Shakespeare adaptations that are like, you know, when you when you take drama classes in college, you watch them. But I don't know if people watch them outside of that. Um, and uh, then then finally, we get to like this 97 to 1999 Castle Rock era, which is just so weird like it's there's a lot of garbage in there like uh my giant billy crystal which is a movie i watched as a kid which the only reason i'm mentioning that in the context of this is like rob of of all these goofballs making spinal tap all of a sudden rob reiner became the powerhouse like sure he was the director before and he had his showbiz connections but now all of a sudden rob reiner is the reason that Christopher Guest gets to be a director. He's the reason that Billy Crystal is 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 uh, making a city movie. slickers and yeah. uh, like g- genuinely really really great comedies like uh, When Harry Met Sally. But like later on, City Slickers and My Giant, and uh, it, it feels like this era is so special because like it's Rob Reiner trying to figure out and his his co producers at Castle Rock are trying to figure out just what the hell a production company is. And there's yeah. like garbage, like Mickey blue eyes next to like movies that have weirdly like stuck around like green mile. Yeah. Mickey blue eyes is not terrible, but yeah, I mean, they are doing some good things. They're doing a few good men, which makes sense. Cause Reiner like directs it. They're doing in the line of fire, which is fucking great. I would love to have an excuse to cover that, but That's yeah, the Meg Ryan, Matt Damon war movie, right? No, that's a uh, courage under fire. What's in the line, line of fire is the Clint Eastwood, John Malkovich. Uh, Clint Eastwood plays a Secret oh, Service directed yeah, by yeah, Wolfgang yeah. Peterson. And the guy's playing like mind games with Clint Eastwood. I've seen this before. Yes. yes. Oh, it's so good. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. But you're yes. right. He, he really is like you. You're, you're saying stuff like, um, um, uh, what is it? Uh, my giant. You're forgetting he's also doing like he gives Billy Crystal a career way past his expiration date because he's doing like Forget Paris and like all these like movies that like if you went in a time machine and saw um uh saw like the posters for you'd be like oh yeah that was a thing <laughs> I remember that was a thing uh he does Zero Effect which is Jake Katzen's. Uh, fantastic debut um, with uh, 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 who's it? Uh, Bill Pullman and uh, Ben Stiller. Oh, yes. I know what you're talking about. Yes, yes, yes. Great movie. Uh, yeah, but it's funny that like he, you know, and plus obviously it goes without saying that Seinfeld he uh, produces where he gets a ton of money from. Uh, Castle Rock does Seinfeld, which also uh, I think that also the, the, the 
the downside from that is that he does uh, sour grapes. Have you ever seen that movie? I, I, I've never seen the sour grapes. No. you never seen You just are aware of it from early seasons of Curvy Enthusiasm. <laughs> yes. Yes. It it is as dire as you uh, as as everyone betrays it as I try I try to watch it because I'm like, could it be that bad? Uh, yeah, you're you're exactly hitting on what I'm I'm talking about, which Great. is that like he has his buddies, he sticks by his buddies, he does, and uh, all the way into the 2000s too. Like it's it's kind of like. crazy how unsuc as all the stars that he um stuck with in the 90s kind of fall out of uh commercial success or fashion or whatever you call it he is kind of sticking by them and making movies for them like uh so you just you have some good stuff like yeah before sunset but then you have like you know fucking dreamcatcher and the majestic yeah and, so like, that's exactly a, a lot of people's nadir is that frank yeah. darabont made Frank Darabont made one of the best Stephen King adaptations ever with Shawshank Redemption in 94. It's a sort of movie that like... And one of the most successful with Green Green Mile. Yeah, yeah. And then he went on to make Green Mile, which is a movie that like nowadays I think has more of a mixed rep, but it was hugely successful and it made Stephen King money before it ever came out because um, he was kind of like selling the shorts in short story chunks it, it became yeah. a novel, but he was selling it in short story chunks before it even the movie was produced. And then Frank Darabont comes around and he was like, I want to make a very sincere sort of sappy drama, The Majestic, which is a movie that is only remembered by people that saw it and hate it. That is not a movie that has any cult following. But he was like, Frank Darabont is, he was like, I can't turn my bu- down my buddy Frank Darabont. I can't turn down my buddy, uh, um, I can't do- turn down my buddy uh, uh, Billy Crystal. And then we get to Dreamcatcher and the funny connection there is it's co-written by uh cat lawrence kasdan and uh william goldman who wrote like princess bride and like you know just some of the best movies of all time and misery so like this is this is a guy who like he doesn't he he doesn't make the sort of um Rob Reiner does not make the sort of uh, executive math that, you know, people get put into movie jail and, 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 I, and you know, you got to give up on him at a certain point. You know, you got your money out of this pony uh, fucking bail. Instead, he's like, uh, <laughs> instead, he's like, yeah, Frank Darabont, just keep making movies with me. <laughs> yeah, which kind of gets sad because, like, you know, Castle Rock is still a thing. I, last episode, we kind of potentially made it to the edit potentially it didn't but we listed the last six or seven rob reiner movies uh to note that he is a very active and b he hasn't made a movie that you've heard of since the bucket list and since 2013's before midnight which uh, castle rock was a producer on uh because of their involvement with before uh sunrise and before sunset the only thing they've done in the last eight years is uh, produce those those terrible Rob Reiner movies no one's ever heard of, like LBJ, Shock and Awe, and Bean Charlie. And now Castle Rock is taking on uh, more of it, it, its true namesake, which is that it's a Stephen King reference because he created it to make like – <laughs> he, cre- he created it, obviously, like, you know, he, he did uh, three movies before he got to Misery, but he wanted – he wanted to make uh, misery, and so he was like, uh, "What do we call our? What do we call this? This particular, um, you know, uh, production company?" And he took and he picked up a a, a, a um, Stephen King reference, and then there was the Castle Rock show, and now that sort of name is in the Stephen King uh, era. 
The show wasn't produced by Castle. It, it was. It was not. <laughs> Turns out Stephen King technically owns Stephen King. Kind of. Kind of should have. You know, the last TV show uh, that actually feeds your theory very well. The last TV show they produced after doing, you know, like uh, stuff that was like besides Seinfeld, um, a lot of stuff that are uh, like did the Ed Bangley Jr. show. Did uh, again his his boys um, some stuff that you might remember hearing of, but didn't last long, like the single guy in Mos- Boston Common. But you know the last one once. Uh, no, the Michael Richards show. Oh, that's that is that is not letting go of your your guys, right? No. I, I, I Peter Michael Richards show aired in two thousand post Seinfeld. I watched that first season, the only season, by the way. Uh, that show is one of the worst things worse than I'd Joey? ever seen. Uh, I think it is worse than Joey in that I had way higher hopes for it because uh, Michael Richards show, first of all, you know, it's the first time I'm seeing Cosmo Kramer inside of Seinfeld. It's also, I was a huge 90s Saturday Night Live guy. Uh, it, it was the show that Tim Meadows quit SNL after all those years for. So I was like, I was hyped. And uh, Michael Richards plays a private eye. And uh, shockingly, when you have your Kramer character, who exists solely to be a side character, uh, you put him as a bumbling private eye, you have a terrible show. That's what you have. Yeah. It shows you it, – it, it does show you, though, and I'm not knocking Rob Reiner for any of these failures – it shows you because, like, why would William Goldman and Lawrence Kasdan, who co-wrote a, a script together, write a bad script? Um, turns out, yeah. It turns out, no matter how good of a script you can write, you can't overpower uh, cocaine era Stephen King. Oh, sorry, that was that was uh, that wasn't cocaine era Stephen King. That was uh, post accident yeah. opioid Stephen King. Yeah. Um, so like, turns out, no matter you hire you hire two of the most renowned screenwriters since like 1970 uh, to write your script. You can still turn in a big fucking garbage pile, it turns out. That is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. It's so disappointing. It's so disappointing. I never never read the novel, but it is. Turning Morgan Freeman into a villain? That's got a great cast. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, I mean, Katzen directs it, too. He's a, he can be a good director. Strange, strange movie. Um, strange anyways, movie. And then the, yeah. other, the other weird piece that we're, we're missing here in this puzzle as we sort of transition is um, Mascots was not produced by Castle Rock. Well, the other thing – so before we transition, there's actually two things that are really going to – become hallmarks of Christopher Guest movies for the most part. So we talked about this in Spinal Tap. Spinal, like, as much as like the Christopher Guest movies are almost seen as like spiritual sequels to This is Spinal Tap, that's true from a mockumentary standpoint, and even then only loosely. We talked about this last week that like Rob Reiner being like it's a different type of, of mockumentary, it's a different type of documentary where the the documentarian is very active in the movie. And this this kind of gets into the formula that we'll see from the rest of guest movies, but also like the kind of concept of the mockumentary genre going forward, which is uh no point of view from the documentarian. They're almost like Gibney, Alex Gibney documentary uh, uh, documentaries, where the where the where this Spinal Tap was the Errol Morris version, where it's just you know talking heads and then scenes of of what uh, what is going on. 
Um, so that's going to become, again, uh, what, what his movies look like. It's also going to be heavily improvised, which is – or mostly improvised. Uh, that was a part of uh, this Spinal Tap. It becomes uh, even more of a hallmark of these because they have less big moments to hit like they did with Spinal Tap. Uh, and it's basically we're going to write the story beats. That becomes also very popular uh, post this movie on stuff like Kirby Enthusiasm. Uh, again, another connection with Castle Rock is a way to, uh, you know, to, to, to let the story find itself. And then the, the other – the third part that's going to become extraordinarily notable and going to feel – tremendously missed when we get around to mascots at the end of this episode, which is this movie and the next three movies, including for your, for your consideration, which is not a mockumentary uh, and not very good. We're not covering it for that reason. Uh, uh, but the next three mockumentaries, at the very least, are all co-written by Eugene Levy, who becomes his kind of writing partner uh, in this in this genre, Eugene Levy again having no connection to Spinal Tap, but being a kind of a comedy legend in the SCTV, uh, 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 you know, uh, milieu. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think Mascots, as you mentioned, also feels it, it's it's missing Castle Rock as a producer. It's also missing Eugene Levy's both presence as an actor, but also his. Um, his uh, hand at the at the writing room, and I do think like having seen mascots in Shit's Creek, um, Peter. I, I don't want to necessarily. Uh, I, I think when you're watching these Christopher Guest movies, you feel like, oh, co-written by Eugene Levy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, especially when they came out, like, yeah, co-written by Jim's dad. I didn't know SCTV that well. <laughs> like, I wasn't putting that much stock into Eugene Levy being uh, as critical, at least from the writing perspective. Or the you know creation perspective as I probably should have been, but like having seen where mascots is and having seen where Shit's Creek is, you you realize that at the very least, uh, my hypothesis is going to be a little bit that um, the 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 tendency to be like we're going to think of one funny characteristic of someone. And make that their character might lean a little bit more to Christopher Guest's side of the that writing aisle, and the characteristic to have uh, mean comedy with heart uh, might go on the Eugene Levy end of the spectrum a little bit. Because what you end up with in like these movies is a lot of really good characterizations. You really feel like you know the characters. They can be mean, but they feel like real real people, and then. It has a little bit of the, this character's got a giant penis, this character's gay, blah, blah, blah. And then when we get around to mascots, we get into the, what if we remove all that first part and just be like, oh, this character is this, and this character is this. And it it feels empty in the way that something's missing. Yeah. It's such a brilliant structure for a movie um, that it, it makes sense that he would copy it again and again. Um, yeah. Small community of weirdos banded together to put on one big show. So in this yep. this one, uh, mascots and uh, Mighty Wind are all all sort of fit that template with little deviations. Best in show, um, best in show I mean, they all is one that's about all of them going into direct competition with each other. Mascots follows that track, and in yeah. this and in. Uh, th- and this one is the only one though where they're all like kind of working together because in yeah. Mighty Wind. They're all trying to deal with 
Um, they're all very separated. They're all trying. They're all trying to deal with uh, internal strife within their own unit of the past. There's yep. uh, there's like one key moment in during the performance in Mighty Wind where it's like one group kind of shits on another, but like largely it's just about groups trying to solve their own own inner bullshit so they can get to to uh, the the day of uh, of the show. In that yeah. sense, Waiting for Goffman is like a more centralized version of that there, where there's there's not a second theater troupe performing something no. after the, the Blaine musical. Um, but they're all kind <laughs> of riffing on the same thing, which is nice because you can spend a ton of the movie just establishing character, letting characters riff on each other, and uh figure out live what the space is so like this this movie is the most improvised it sounds like um because um it doesn't have the the gags that some of his later movies have where um you had to have written it beforehand in this it's like a lot of the gags end up coming during editing so like um eugene levy riffing um while while he's talking about his his uh like sort of ancestral past as uh as a performer and that like he has his you know pa- parents or grandparents that were performers and he says there's a line I can't forget which is his uh and he and my grandfather wrote uh wrote a uh a play called a uh, dibic schmibic past the ham <laughs> and he's so proud of that pun that his grandfather wrote or not even pun but like turn of phrase and like that's clear Eugene Levy fucking around and then the cutaway is a picture of um, a like an older Jewish man like that's something that you can just like riff on and then let the edit take it away right that's that's sort of that's sort of a liberating freedom whereas compared to a gag I keep coming back to but the the two left shoes bit in best in show like that's something you kind of have to plan ahead the specifics yeah. of it you can you know, i mean the specifics of it you can you can um you can you, you can uh figure out on day of because you've got a wireframe but like the idea that he has two left feet and then at the end of the movie that's gonna matter that's something you definitely have to figure out during the, the sort of the sort of structure process but like the the that this movie feels the most uh, unencumbered by a structure of all the rest of them because it's just all of the cast shoved together, and then at the end of the movie, there's a there's a show, and uh, the show is is the part that the, all the songs in the show are is the part that was prescripted. Kind of everything yeah. outside of that is not prescripted. Yeah, I mean, I do think like I, I it does feel less scripted, and I you know I, I I was reading about that too in the first like two acts about how it really wasn't coming together. The, I would say though that the third act. Um, up there with a mighty wind feels the most scripted because by definition they have to put on a play and a musical. And so like most of that stuff and obviously like how the crowd reacts to that um, would have had to have been scripted for, for the most part. So, um, but yeah, up until that, uh, up until that, it does feel a lot more raw. It's also worth noting uh, even though uh, McKean and Shear's presence aren't felt, uh, I think I mentioned this maybe last week. Uh, they wrote all the songs with Guest for this, um, for the for the musical part for the Red, White, and Blaine. Yeah, uh, which, is, which is great. Like it's it is great in all their movies. They get, Mighty Wind as well. Yeah, well, and also they get little. You know, obviously McKean becomes an actor in his movies again in um, 
in Best in Show, and then Harry Shearer is the announcer for the dog show. So it's it's nice that all three of uh, all of his movies still kind of retain the that Spinal Tap um, touch and friendship. And then, I mean, in some ways, even though he's not in in participating in any ways, you know, uh, Rob Reiner is producing all of them up until for your consideration. So it is it is kind of sweet that uh, you know what we talked about last week with those with those four kind of creating this like magical perfect comedy movie it's great that uh they kind of stayed together for for everything we're gonna see uh, from here on out yeah until up until uh mascots and and, and what's fun about that is that it is sort of blending different uh different families together so like obviously there was the old you know spinal tap rob reiner uh, TV family, which blended in with an SNL, an extended SNL family, um, which blended in with sort of LA comedy family, because this movie uh, has a cameo by David Cross. Um, and then it also had a cut cameo by Bob Odenkirk. Um, yeah. Which nowadays I wonder if Christopher Guest would have, you know, if he was a director's cut guy, if he would have included that. But um, the there's just uh, <laughs> yeah. and then as time goes on, he's he's including uh, in Best in Show, he's cl- including an entirely different community, which is Lauren Michaels' uh, sort of uh, Canadian SAT family. Um, yeah. And it's sort of these connections upon connections, like he's pulling from. Uh, broader troops and blending with these people that he meets at parties in LA or, you know, he meets through Lauren Michaels in, in New York. And it, it, that's, that's what's part of the fun is that this movie in particular and um, this movie in particular, more than the rest of them, it feels like a community coming together and doing a community production and whoever you have available that best fits a sort of uh, purpose of the, of the production uh, gets to, to to lead things. And then that's also kind of like metatextually what they're doing by just pulling from their, their cast of friends, doing some casting to extend that family a little bit and bring in new blood. But like they're, they're pulling in a lot of people they already they already had worked with he had already worked with and he had already met or people he trusted had met and could vouch for um and and that's kind of like the the secret magic sauce here is that everybody trusts each other that's a, that's going to be a theme for the rest of the month even like unfunny gags everybody is just kind of riding that improv energy even for gags yeah. that just are not, just do not fucking work um there's there's a, a tremendous amount of just like familial energy between them. Yeah, I think it's a perfect segue to talk more about uh, what those guys are waiting for. The guff, man. What's Don't give guff, me no guff, man. What's the guff, man? So, Waiting for Guffman is essentially about this town, Blaine, Missouri, uh, which is having their Seska Centennial, 150 uh, 150 year anniversary of them becoming a city. It is, we'll probably talk about this a lot. I don't want to spend too much time on it now. It is quintessential small town 
Midwest from the type of characters, the towns, very much so in the 90s too. I feel like it's the type of town that has like maybe 5,000 people in their population. They're dying and the town is dying and there's not that many young people because the young people all move and go to cities and like the industry that supports them in town may have even gone away and now it's just like basically the the town's economy is like the town paying each other for like car repairs and restaurant stuff and like uh there's almost no new money going into the town it's just the the money that exists circulating through through all these kind of they had their stool boom already Exactly. Um, and that's – yeah. So uh, we'll talk about that. It's just – it feels so familiar having grown up in North Dakota of like all the little towns that exist and like sometimes have schools and blah, blah, blah. But um, yeah. But they have a mythical history that of course is very Christopher Guestian and like has a couple of – silly moments that they can utilize throughout. So uh, they're claimed – so first of all, they were settled by Blaine Fabin who thought he had reached the Pacific Ocean and tried to convince everyone for a while in like a Parks and Rec gag that he had settled, found the Pacific Ocean. But, uh, I smell salt water over that ridge. But of course, uh, they had settled in Blaine and uh, everyone became fine with it. Their big claim to fame, as Peter mentioned, is President McKinley drove through on a train and a little kid gave him a stool and President McKinley said this is the finest stool ever and that got out in the papers and everyone wanted a Blaine stool, which led to the stool. Boom. Again, such a Gastian joke of like, I am I am an eight-year-old at heart. Uh, and uh, so we get to meet – so we, we get a lot of that of like, here's the town. Some of the silliness, as you would any small town. Uh, Peter mentioned David David Cross, who's talking about how uh, aliens visited and took people on their spaceship. And the, before Roswell, their claim to fame is that you know they actually had a visitation pre Roswell. They seem annoyed that hasn't caught on. Um, and uh, you know they're going to do. There's this person in town named Co- Corky Sinclair, Saint Clair, paid by Christopher Guest, who's going to put on the pageant for the Seska. Centennial. He's uh, he's from New York. He tried to make it on Broadway. He's a gay stereotype, um, and he is putting on the show. So it starts with auditions. Uh, the people that get the part are uh, so Catherine O'Hara and Fred Willard are a married couple. They're kind of the they're travel agents. They're stars of the of Corky's productions. Uh, including like uh, some that are infamous and like uh, Backdraft, where he uh, put. Uh, cinders through the air duct system to make people smell the smoke and burn down the theater. Um, there is uh, a Ju- Eugene Levy who plays uh, 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 who plays uh, Dr. Alan Pearl, a dentist who studied from the class clown who always wanted to be in show business. Uh, he's trying out for his first play. He ends up getting a part uh, in it because he's actually a surprisingly good uh, singer. Um, and then um, there is Parker Posey, who plays Libby Mae Brown, works as Dairy Queen. She gets a part as kind of the younger girl. And then there's supposed to be uh, uh, Johnny Savage, who's like supposed to be um, Parker Posey's uh, equivalent as the young, young Blanian, uh, who will drop out of the play about halfway through. So he's not in it much. Um, so uh, the next third is basically them rehearsing the play. Um 
uh, and all the different like ridiculousness of the way that Corky is trying to show his art in his theater and get everyone going. There's the dyna- the dynamic is very much Fred Willard being the um, kind of narcissistic star while uh, while Alan. Alan Pearl is really kind of struggling to – he wants to try really hard. He wants to get loose, but, you know, it's not in his, his second nature. And Libby Mae Brown, Parker Posey's character, just wanting to really do a good job as her escape from the modernity of her life. There is a little twist in that Corky apparently has been sending letters to people on Broadway or do theater stuff in New York to come see the play they're putting on. And one of them, Mort Guffman, replies back, says that he'll be there. So now the the play has taken on a completely different turn and that they – Corky makes the leap that he's going to come see this play and they're all going to go do this show, Red, White, and Blaine on, on Broadway. And uh, he you – know, so there's some things in there that happen. Corky asks the town for $100,000. They point out the entire town's budget is $15,000. Um, and so he quits the show. Um, they eventually almost immediately get him back to put on the best production that they can. Also, Johnny quits the show because his dad, Brian Doyle Murray, in a little bit part, uh, says he has to get back to work at the auto repair shop. So, also, by the way, uh, similar to David Cross, there has to be just so much of both of them and just sitting on the cutting room floor because oh, yeah. you don't bring in Brian Doyle Murphy at, at like – to shoot a eight second thing where all he says is like when you're done the Chevy needs a carburetor change or whatever he says. Yeah, while he kind of stares at Corky. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, um, I mean this movie is eighty minutes, so like they really, I imagine it. You know, there's a there's a two hour cut that could easily exist, and they slimmed it down. And I will say, I, I mean, I love this movie. The movie works really well. Uh, in, in its brevity. Uh, so anyway, so uh, Johnny quits. Corky has no choice but to take his place as like all the – in this kind of I – don't, I don't know what you call it. Like almost uh, – uh, um, what do you call this kind of play, Peter? Where it's uh, – I mean they call it a pageant. I guess that maybe feels right. There's actually a word I'm thinking of that I'm now completely forgetting where it's basically just scenes of the history of the town and all five of our – uh, characters in the play keep playing different different characters telling the story of Blaine. Uh, you know, there's there's comedy that's mined through the play of Corky, uh, a 50-year-old gay man from New York, playing uh, an a 18- to 20-year-old young person in love with Parker Posey and stuff like that. Um, so they do the play. At first, uh, the seat that they had reserved for Mort Guffman isn't there. Someone comes near the end. Uh, they do a big show. They pull who they believe to be Mort Guffman uh, up on after, backstage afterwards and ask if they can make it on Broadway. They're initially excited and thrilled because he says yes, only to find out that he's just the father of someone in town that gave birth. And they get a telegram or a letter. Not an email because it is <laughs> – it's both too early for that uh, in it, – it's too early for that in Blaine. Maybe not in New York. Um, but uh, – uh, that said that um, Mort Guffman was actually held up by weather and he never came. So much like uh, the 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 namesake of Waiting for Guffman, Waiting for Godot, Guffman never shows up. And then they do their kind of typical – that will become typical in, in guest movies where it shows X period amount later. You have uh, Fred Willard and Catherine O'Hara who did go to – 
uh, to California and they're extras and they kind of are trying to deal with the fact that they're not, you know, they're, they were the big fish in a tiny pond and now they're uh, insignificant fish in the biggest pond in the world. Uh, and they're kind of dealing with that while trying to maintain their enthusiasm. Yeah, they're essentially, have, um, they, they're, they're, they're uh, ad, they're, they're ad models for a cowboy boot, co- a real cowboy boot company called Justin. Um, yeah. And they're like upset that the, People are being not respectful to them because um, all of them kind of either they already had the bug or they they all of them kind of to some degree caught Corky's yeah Corky's that- sort of infection of of big theater ambition um, so like. Uh, Dr. Alan Pearl, yeah, it quits his dentistry practice, which was probably somewhat successful, and is now doing uh, My Baby Made a Kushka at Retirement Home. And his wife, played by Linda Cash, um, also like a, 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 a comedy, a uh, bit of a, a comedy icon. Yeah. We don't talk about her next week, but she's in Best in Show as well. Yes, yes. Um, she uh, is not in any of that. Presumably, he like also left his wife or she left him in some part of uh, the I didn't get it. I mean, I. I think those two are a cute couple. I, I she's very supportive. I mean, she's not at the show, but I, I get the like. I don't think that they that he left his wife. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's one of those things that's definitely supposed to be depressing, though, because that is the hundred percent the conflict that we're going to dance with for a lot of the month is 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 um sort of is is uh christopher guest a a cynic or a humanist um and this is the sort of ending that that kind of uh points in both directions so he has this one's almost all cynic though like because then you have parker posey who just like is heartbreaking it's heartbreaking where she's now working in alabama dairy queen because her dad got out of jail and you know, just like this, this saddest like. She said she wants to go chase her dreams, and then she, and then she immediately the story just kind of upends with her being like, "Well, yeah." The, then you I, know, I, there's I, al- there's always a place for me um, at, at the Dairy Queen, and that she's trying to use some creative energy to think of new Dairy Queen treats. Um, incredibly sad, a because obviously Dairy Queen isn't going to take her suggestions because we they're a chain, but just the way she the way she says there's always like. There's always a spot for me at the Dairy Queen. Sounds like, you know, I'll always have a home six feet under at some point. Like, it's that <laughs> same, same tone. Uh, and then um, I think in potentially the, the – one of the things that I think this movie is remembered for from a comedic standpoint, I do think like Corky St. Clair's is like somewhat uh, the happiest of endings. He moved back to New York. He's getting a shot in a play, which we know he's not going to get. Um but apparently, his wife is unseen. Also, wife is unseen. But the, I mean, the part that I think people remember is that he's opened this like pop culture store in New York. Um, must be some rent controlled square footage on that store, even in 1996, because uh, it's a big store <laughs> for New York to be selling um, uh, my dinner with Andre action figures and stuff like that. Someone on Letterbox did point out that like. The funny thing, the funniest thing about that ending now is that if that store existed in 2021 in New York, it would probably be a huge hit. Yeah, because of hipster culture. Yeah, like there's uh, we used to have like weird cheese shops that would do really well, and now there's like specifically like honey shops and cream cheese shops and like we only sell mead shops. Um, So like there's a 
there's the, 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 that sort of like hipster coddling of, of niche artifacts, which, you know, inevitably go under once the, the, the hipster audience slips away because it's not cool anymore. Um, like that stuff can survive for a period yeah. of time. I mean, I would buy my, my Dare with Andre action figures. I think a lot of people would just because it's so stupid. But um, I think, you know, at the time you're just laughing at how stupid it is. Um, yeah. But um, – And let's – yeah, probably... We talk about it a lot better I think next week with Waiting for Guffman – or sorry. Um, <laughs> we talked about it a lot uh, better next week with uh, Best in Show with our guest. Um, but um, – with this, I feel like it's probably appropriate to just spend like a minute on the fact that like Corky is a gay stereotype played by a straight man in a way that like a lot of the laugh lines are just at how flamboyant and fey his line readings are. And like the, I think that the movies, my fail, my problem with my problem with the Corky character is that like, I have a hard time laughing at him because a lot of the jokes come back to just roving gay stereotype and not um, this guy is a just deluded theater mess, which is way funnier and it's fair game. Um, yeah. Like, it, like there's a couple moments in this that are kind of somewhere in between because like uh, Christopher Guest can't help but add a little bit of color to the character. Corky showing off that he's sort of a, <laughs> he's sort of a, you know, he's, I'm not just a, a director. I'm not just a writer. Um, I also am a performer and it's him performing. Is it like a crisscross routine with his backwards pants? <laughs> Is, uh, yeah, he's trying. He's trying to loosen up to music of today by getting in the spirit of it. To, that's how he comes up with his dance moves. For that is that is just like there's stuff in there like that. Like that is the funniest fucking thing. Or demanding a hundred thousand dollars, and then when they say no, that you're just bastard. You're people. bastard people. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. Look, or like, I, or like, I don't think they, I don't think that Christopher, Christopher Guest needed to add more pathos to this movie if he's going to have the joke about Corky having a secret Canadian wife. Not so that she's actually she, Canadian, but like the idea yeah, that people say like, oh, I have a girlfriend. She, oh, you wouldn't know her. She's in Canada. It, that's kind of how Corky's uh, wife is. And she's, it's sort of a, uh, it's an imaginary beard. So I'm not trying to defend the, the gay stereotype aspect of Corky and obviously it's a straight man who's playing you know putting on a, a voice and doing something that's supposed to be I'm gonna go home and bite my pillow yeah like that, uh, that's the exact line reading I, I'm not gonna defend a lot of it here's what I will say though uh, and also the, the reason why it gets really hard to, to even just defend holistically is that Christopher Guest makes it very clear all the way up through Mascots, which again is uh, 20 plus years later, that he finds gay people hilarious. So, like, I, Waiting for Guffman doesn't exist in a vacuum. Um, he, much like every shitty comic of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, uh, thinks that, like, just the way that gay people – just gay people existing while he would probably – not say he has like hate for them uh he still is uh you know helping to propagate uh, a stereotype that does real and has done real damage and again if waiting for government exists in a vac exists in a vacuum i may have a more spirited defense for it but as we will talk about next week like 
best in show uh and uh the the john michael huggins character just makes it like abundantly clear like and then on to like you know the the huge bummer of an ending that we're going to talk about with the mighty show we're just out of nowhere uh, they make a horribly transphobic joke, and even um, even mascots has a lot of like uh, uh, you know people that are not heteronormative are funny. So that's gonna anything I say here is going to be be faced with the fact that essentially uh, that Christopher Guest has a twenty plus year track record of finding gay people funny and in just in just their existence, and so that that's not going to make any case. Here's what I will say though. And this is kind of something I want to talk about broadly in in this movie as well. Uh, this movie feels and 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 Corgi Sinclair as a character existing within a, a New York person who's not heteronormative, existing in this small uh, you know town um, and and directing a play feels so ridiculously true to to so many of my experiences so I'll, I'll talk through a few things and i'll try to make it as quickly as possible because i don't want to make this the story of aaron's life but um I, I was in a ton of plays and like i when i was a kid i wanted to be an actor that's what i wanted to do the first chance i had to to start to be in a real play i was in uh they do a sleepy hollow summer theater um, in, in Bismarck, it's 7th graders through through 12th graders. They do 15 show. They do this giant outdoor theater. It sells out every single single night. I did that for a couple of years. Uh, started in 7th grade with a little uh, very now musical one that you could put on today, uh, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. <laughs> they also did West Side Story and only white people exist in Bismarck, North Dakota. Uh, so you can imagine. So Brownface, thankfully, I was not a shark, so there's no pictures of me in, in Brownface. But uh, even looking back, it's like, holy shit, they just put those kids in Brownface for the, <laughs> for the sharks. Um, it's Bismarck, North Dakota. It's a population of 60,000 people. I was in high school plays that I don't have any terrible like memories of. Um, but – all of these people, the choir director played by Bob Balaban, who is like weirdly at odds with the director, um, the weird demands and like politi- political fights with people that occur, the even the um, force, I'm going to say forcibly closeted uh, gay director, uh, uh, I lived through all that stuff. Like that, that all, like the scenes in this movie played out. Or would have had to have played out exactly as like existed in my real life. So I'm going to use the Seven Brides for Seven Brothers one as like a as like a very typical one. So that that play had a director, seventh through twelfth graders. They cast the play, fifteen nights, seven male leads, seven female leads, tons of extra, tons of bit parts. I was an extra because I was young on that. Um, some parents complained. That, hey, like, my kid didn't get cast for this fun summer theater thing that you guys did. A lot of parents did. So the people that ran Sleepy Hollow um, said, hey, went to the director and said, um, hey, like, can we add some more extras or maybe do some double, like, some double casting, which is very common in high school plays. Like, you know, one, there's two casts so that more people are able to participate, especially, you know, it's a whole town. There's, there's a lot of talented kids that are doing theater stuff. Uh, he refused to because he wanted to be true to his vision and he quit. Um, and 
some of the cast so so like no if we have to be true to our art again these are 12 to 18 year olds they also quit so then they bring in a new uh director guy named brandon um who is a younger guy who's out of the Medora musical, something else I want to talk about. Because <laughs> holy shit, Peter. It's like, what if, what if they did Red, White, and Blaine every single night at a little town called Medora over the summer in an amphitheater in the Badlands of North Dakota? They do. It's called the Medora musical. <laughs> it's the same fucking thing where they just talk about the history of Medora through these like dumb ass songs and skits. And it, like it's a tourist town. It sells out every night. I've, I've seen it like... 20 times because we used to go there every summer. It's the worst thing in the world. But this guy was from there. He had been a performer there. He was now directing. He was a uh, – uh, actually, I think I've talked about on the show because actually uh, he was the nicest man in the world. Um, he, was, uh, he, was, he, was a, um, he was a gay man. Um, most likely closeted things I didn't realize until later on in my life or a little bit because, uh, my, as people started to meet him, what ended up happening is that the town, including my parents kind of started turning against him. And I didn't realize why, cause I'm a sheltered 12 year old kid. And I've told you this before as a little bit of like my, when I realized that they didn't trust him because he was gay, um, uh, that that was like where I personally was like, well, that's fucking stupid because Brandon's an extremely nice man and has done this great show and is fun and helpful. So if you guys think he's shitty because of he, I guess he has a boyfriend, which they saw at one of the cast parties and stuff like that, like then that's a shitty thing to think. And like that, 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 that's like my origin of coming from an extremely homophobic background is of recognizing, thankfully, early on how fucking dumb, uh, homophobia and stuff like that was but like all that stuff peter like uh the like i said the choir director who one time like had a shouting match with the director of my high school play and stormed off and didn't come back till a week later like all that stuff feels very real and so the part of it is like the, the the quirky part that i think really resonates with me and again i just have a very specific experience i'm not trying to say is like the way the town and, you know, in my case, like the parents and other things reacted to Brandon, while Brandon is um, just existing in this world and trying to put on a good show and people not knowing what to do with it just feels so goddamn like real <laughs> to to the experience that I kind of lived through. Um, and so, like, yes, the like, I'm going to go home and bite my pillow stuff um, you know, just feels like Christopher Guest, like doing a, um, a, 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 I, I'm, I get, I'm a gay character, so I get to say these like homophobic line readings and stuff like that. But I will say a lot of the jokes around the town, not really knowing how to deal with it or being in denial about it or stuff like that, especially in the mid nineties in a small Midwest town of like, you know, uh, that basically is just uh, you know heteronormative and and white all like white straight Christians um, feels very real to me in a way that probably makes me forgive some of the the tendency of this movie because it feels very true to an experience that I have had. Yeah, yeah, like it, I actually it's it's funny you mentioned that as soon as this was over, I was googling if they had made another documentary on the exact same subject, like a real documentary, and I wasn't able to find one, but I'm sure one exists because like this is a fascinating little dynamic. Like 
Um, obviously, in your situation, um, the cast was a little younger, but like uh, small town theater troops and the drama that ensues, and uh, particularly for yeah, small town theater troops that uh, don't aren't just getting together to do one performance; they're getting together to you know we're gonna have seasons, and you know in the winter yeah. we're gonna do this, and blah blah blah. Um, that's a fascinating dynamic because like. Sometimes you're just stuck with somebody because they've got great pipes, but they're a drunk. <laughs> Sometimes you're just stuck with stuff with some, yeah, stuck with somebody because they have a connection to the theater, but they're absolutely talentless. Like there's a there's a lot of great drama to be mined from uh, these these sort of uh, these sort of little communities, and I would love to see paired up with this movie like an a document if if you know of one because i was googling for about 20 minutes uh, i don't it does feel like it has to exist though right like it's such a great some idea. small town putting up yeah uh, and that's also just why like we talk about this next week about how best in show ends up being very successful i think for wider audiences because the concept of a dog show like the westminster uh dog show and other ones exists so you don't really need to make people understand your concept in the same way that like i think guffman a mighty wind and mascots need to in, in some respects yeah um this one for for me specifically felt like i just immediately understood everything like i i didn't feel like i needed to be brought into the world just because like small town puts on a play and everyone gets way too serious about it and there's all these weird dynamics um felt like like I said, like little mini scenes out of my life. Yeah, and and just I think that kind of points me to like one of my. So I have a problem with Corky, even though I think Corky ends up being a good character overall. I have problems with him just because he's like a gay stereotype, and it's just yeah. A lot of the jokes do rely on like this is a funny way to say a line reading if you're homophobic. Um, and uh, and the director doing it is an extra kind of level. Uh, the another thing that I kind of have a problem with this movie, more so this movie than the other movies, is that like while there's a lot of truth in the like small like you were pointing out, like a small failing town having a lot of pride or a small Midwest town, even if it's not failing because, you know, uh, you know, pe- people have found work, you know, their little economy seems to work. There's there's a lot of like like East Coast West Coast elitism about Middle America that I'm always on yep. the watch for in these movies when it's like obviously yep. someone from like like a Christopher Guest person um, where it's like okay so there's there's some really smart cutting stuff there like this town being very excited about their their pride uh, being very prideful about their past but like uh, Blaine ends up being like a grifter basically like meek. Or, uh, you know, the, the guy who led the Donner Party. Um, yeah. So, like, the Meeks cut off and the Donner Party stories are both about grifters who got people in a lot of fucking trouble because they, you know, people didn't know how to navigate the center part of the country that was, like, wild uh, and, and uh, you know, was not hospitable for white people that didn't know how to interact with Native Americans. The joke in this movie is that Blaine thought he heard or he told everyone that he thought he smelled uh, the salt air of the ocean and then they just sort of settled. And then they make a pretty great pun, which is that like, uh, particularly as a Midwesterner, a pretty great pun, which is that it's not just that they settled there, 
It's that they settled for there. <laughs> like, it's, it's, that, it's that they were like, well, they realized the ocean wasn't there eventually. And then they were like, well, why not just stay here? Um, like, that stuff is great because it's like talking about the American, like the, the, the general American experience and, and moving across the country. But some of the stuff in this, I feel like they could have used, he could have used a more humanist and a lighter touch um, with these characters where like, even even in times where characters are being punched in the face, it feels like the joke is the joke is on them. Uh, I feel like a lot of the the way that the movie ends its relationship with Parker Posey is like is something that like it's a sad ending, but it's like a sad it's a sad ending for a character that we feel bad for the whole time and like. Parker Posey is so like naturally charismatic that like with the right mentorship, she could she could do something like she's not. No, she's not particularly smart, street smart in particular. But like with the right with the right, you know, leadership, she could probably figure something out that's that serves her talents a little bit better than working in Dairy Queen for forever. But there's moments kind of like her ending where I'm like, I wish Christopher Guest had infused a little bit more humanity in there. And I feel like the reason he doesn't is because he kind of has a a, a a negative attitude about like he just thinks everyone from the middle part of the country is is the dumb rednecks see i i think there's a lot of i i, I kind of I, I disagree with you in general on on that point like especially when it comes to barker posey i think i think there's a lot of melancholy in the idea of someone with like um uh, you know, kind of a, a uh, an upbringing as someone who like, yeah, if you're born into a town of 5,000 people and you don't have job prospects and maybe, you know, there's not a college nearby and maybe school wasn't that important, you end up working at a Dairy Queen and like that's where you may live your entire life and stuff like that. And I, I, I think there's actually a lot of like uh, – uh, empathy and stuff shown to her and I think – I don't think – like her ending tag – Everyone else's is is supposed to be funny. I don't think hers is supposed to be funny at all. Like it is supposed to be, I think, very, very like depressing that she's kind of like through almost no fault of her own. Um, she's uh, she's kind of stuck stuck in this, and I think especially having seen the big picture, I I do think that like if if this movie is really like hitting something hard yeah it definitely has laughs at kind of the middle america small town a little bit too proud of its thing again that doesn't feel out of the bounds for me i just sent you something peter i don't know if you're ever gonna get high or drunk enough to want to watch the whole thing but i i literally wish there was a situation where you and i could like just for a night go to the medora musical because you would lose your shit at how close it is to this (laughs) um like the, the town's claim to fame, and it is a very pop. it's the biggest tourist town in North Dakota, is that Teddy Roosevelt stayed there once and, like, um, and, like, you know, went hunting and shot a buffalo or something. And he has these quotes about, like, how, uh, you know, if he could have, he would have settled down in Medora because it might just be the most beautiful place his eyes had ever, like, 
at this show that they do nightly, there's a Teddy Roosevelt guy who comes out and like says all of his quotes that they said and they sing songs about how great the city was and its claim to fame and you know that like it it's it's this except it's you know two hours long and it has like all the same like dumb like um uh, you know, knee slap and cowboy stuff while it recounts the history of North Dakota and Medora specifically and Teddy. Like, it it just feels so right. And also having just grown up around a lot of that, I got to tell you, I, I do think that people's general judgment of those people is probably somewhat spot on. I, I don't have a – like, I know that you grew up in Chicago, so you have a little bit more of that big city air. I, I have a I – I don't have a lot of sympathy for – uh, people are too mean to rural people just because I, I grew up around them and I think if anything people are not mean enough <laughs> to a lot of those to a lot of those uh, but the thing is you grew people. up there and like you yeah so it is a little, you easily yeah. could have met someone that you uh, that you loved and wanted to build a life with like you could have uh, met a, a different version of your wife there and like been in a small town where you're like, well, you know, the well, I, yeah. I end up being a manager at this particular factory, and it's not that shitty of a 100%. job. And I, like, there's this idea that this idea that 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 um the center of the country is populated by nothing but like unambitious dullards, unless someone from one of yeah. the coasts comes in and inspires them. It's just like it's some it's it's a myth that only people from the coasts believe. So that that's the part I have that problem with, like the liberal like Twitter shit about like. uh you know, this is what Georgia gets, you know, like forgetting that even in like the reddest of red states, like there's still like not not to put it to politics, but like uh, even in Bismarck or Medora or name any small town, like there are definitely people that are like worthy of derision, not because they're stuck working at the Dairy Queen or something like that, but because like they have truly monstrous ideas and beliefs about about people and all that kind of stuff um but the idea of like writing off uh, whole parts of of the country or cities or stuff like that because you know there there's a there's a common stereotype of like southern people who like you know are racist or stuff like that yeah there's a lot of southern race people there's a lot of people in north dakota who are horribly racist too it's actually a huge problem with these uh you know the when when you're when your towns are basically homogenous, right? Uh, which which Blaine is for the most part as well, and like that's that's the bigger issue. So I I guess I I I don't think that this movie is like horribly mean. I think it actually uh, sort of it's in some ways very well observed. Yeah, it's, to to a reality that I just I I was very familiar. Yeah, with. I'm not expecting this movie to <clears throat> to um uh. Completely rewrite itself to uh, make a fully balanced portrait of a small yeah. Missouri town, right? Like, um, like I've been to Missouri a lot. I've met some of the worst people on the planet. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Also, college educated some of the worst people on the yeah. planet. Yeah, um, that's not to oh, say I mean, that, like, I, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that, like, yeah, these people don't don't exist. But I'm saying specifically, like, I've been to rural Missouri. Some of the people there are the worst people on the planet. Uh, my point oh, is more that the like, most I race, the most racist moment I've ever observed in real life, I've uh, happened in Springfield, Missouri. <laughs> like, yeah. like the 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 like literally a moment that like uh, blew away a lot of myths that like 
yeah, there's a bunch of old racist people, but once they die out, things will be fine. <laughs> like happened in Missouri. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's it, but my my point is more the the general idea is that like I wish that <laughs> I wish that and it's not even specific to middle America because in the next, uh, the next movie as well as, uh, mascots, people are from all over, including uh, outside of America. Uh, yeah. it's that, uh, I think that Christopher Guest, the one thing that I can fault these movies for movies that I watch, you know, semi-regularly, um, overall, um, is that I think that he sometimes lacks a humanist touch that like sometimes he doesn't yes. balance he doesn't balance out this sort of like teasing of the characters with a um a, a, a genuine appreciation for for their humanity um which is you know maybe it's it's corny as shit to ask for that from a silly 80 minute comedy but like there are times in best in show which is one of my favorite movies of all time there are times in best in show where i was like this feels a little bit too mean a little bit too acidic and this movie um when it ends i'm kind of bummed out uh and i'm not saying that like movies every comedy's movie every, i'm not saying that every comedy needs to end with you having a happy good feel um, and that's, you know, the, the test of whether or not it's a true comedy. Like we're not using some sort of like fucking Greek standards for how a comedy should, should feel. <laughs> um, but it's more the idea that like, I, I, I wish that this movie sort of opens up, um, one of my problems with Guest as, as a filmmaker is that sometimes his, his worldview can be a little bit too acidic for me or cynical. Yeah. I, I, well, I mean, like I told you, I said, don't watch the big picture. But I do think that cynicism is, like, very clear-cut early on in even his directorial, like, debut. Like, he does have a lot of cynicism, I think, for uh, the concept of uh, fame and people wanting to get fame. And actually, like, that's pretty consistent throughout all his movies, Mighty Wind almost being the exception where no one's really trying to capture past glory except the uh, the one group who everyone kind of looks on as a little bit of derision. Like, but, um, you know, I, I think, like, if anything, the, the, the theme to this movie, which I actually, like, do think is relatively resonant, is is something that, like, it, in, a, in a macrocosm, I, I experience, like, all the time in life, both for myself and, and observing it in other people, which is, like, the, the, the takeaway at the end. Like, there's, so the, you know, uh, they have the, they think Mort Guffman's there. They were all excited about putting on this amazing performance to celebrate Blaine, which they love, and to show and to like, you know, do something that they love, which is performing. And that's like, that's where everyone's head's at for the first half hour of this movie. And then all of a sudden, the, the possibility of it becoming a Broadway show, which I'm, I'm going to leave aside the joke that like, uh, the 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 unrealism of of anything just becoming a Broadway show, let alone like a, a very town specific pageant uh, becoming. I mean, even a Corky show. makes a joke about one of his productions being off, 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 off Broadway. Like he's he's teasing himself for the 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 lack of fame it had. Yeah, he makes he makes a huge leap. Right, like of what this is going to be now that this one guy is coming to observe, and. Now, instead of uh, caring about anything they cared about before, they everyone gets more obsessed with the concept of 
this being a leapfrog to something bigger, despite how unrealistic it is. And so, like, I love the scene where they realize it's not more Guffman, not because it's funny, but because of how, like, you have all these people who are celebrating. They, they put on a, a really good show. The whole town flips the fuck out. Everyone's excited. They're proud of them, themselves. They hit all their marks. They sing all the songs. The show is well-received. And instead of, like, because that's no longer the thing that they cared about, they're walking out of there celebrating, then trying to see if that's their ticket to something else. And then when they find out that Guffman didn't come and that that dream was is, – is that balloon of a dream is, is popped in front of them. Now, they're not able to enjoy anything they just did. They, they literally worked and did all that for nothing. If anything, they worked and did all that stuff to feel bad about themselves because instead of – uh, fastening the realistic dream that they should have had in that cir- those circumstances that they started with, they have now put so many things on top of it that kind of achieving success or ex- achieving a moment of happiness with that show is completely impossible. And that's something that like I I, I think that Christopher Guest both like continual is a theme that he goes back to consistently, which is this idea of needing to ascend from your station in life specifically as it relates to like a semblance of fame or recognition is like a toxic thing that actually makes you miss the, the, the moments that you love. It's, you know, there's a little bit of that in best in show, even with a couple I like where, you know, they, they won two years in a row. (laughs) They found love through this. Uh, and, uh, they won best in, uh, best in uh round or whatever um and they're you know they're still a little bit angry that they didn't actually win best in show even though only one person can win it every year and it's it, and this is a this this is a, again what i see all the time in real life that like the idea that like you know people just feel like they that they they can't just have like I can't just have this thing that i like it needs to be this thing or i'm going to be disappointed or or you know, I can't just have a job uh, that I that I don't hate. I need to have be like a a job that I wake up every morning excited for and stuff like that. And if I don't have that, like then I I can't have this. And I, I you know, and that's you know that's a, that adds to a whole capitalism thing, which I'm not trying to bring into this. But um, I I do feel like that that idea of like. You, you you have to be able to have a realistic assessment of what can make you happy in your life. And when you don't, uh, you end up ruining the things that can actually give you a sense of happiness for instead uh, uh, sadness that an unrealistic thing didn't happen. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I, I feel like I want to transition away from like my negatives about the movie because I particularly do like there's a quirky is gay joke that I do like, which is that he casts Johnny Savage because he thinks he's hot. Like Johnny has shown no interest, like zero interest in the play. He, yeah. He's just someone who quirky has either heard about or seen around town. And he's like he goes to his auto body shop and he's just like. Well, yeah, you're going to be in the play now. And because Johnny's sort of a simpleton, he's just like, yeah, all right, I guess I'll show up. And he like throws himself into it. Um, yeah. And eventually gets pulled because he's like not that dedicated to it. And his dad wants him at his actual job. Um, yeah. And then Corky gets ends up having to perform in the play 
So he ends up having to play heteronormative roles that he had assigned to Jenny Savage, who was more of a, a, a um, like a, more of a traditionally masculine guy, right? Like there's a yep. line reading where he's like, uh, I think it's uh, Parker Posey is kind of chasing him around stage because they're supposed to be settlers. And he's yeah. like, there will be plenty of time for kissing when we get to California. And it's like a line that's that's like very funny because it's clearly Corky wrote that line for like a, a masked man, Savage. a Johnny yeah. Savage. But now he's stuck playing it because otherwise the show does not go on. Um, and so like that's that's stuff that like I, you know, I, I have a philosophical problem with it. But the idea of a closeted gay man, because otherwise the show will not happen, having to inhabit roles that he wrote for a very masculine man. Um, yeah, that stuff is very that stuff is very funny to me. And what you're talking about is like the hard of the movie which is that like the the sort of the show must go on style um uh, attachment to the show gets poisoned into it's not just the show must go on it's uh the show must go on and also the show must change our lives the show must go on and then if we do continue with the show uh we're going to be huge stars yeah the show the show will change our lives and the it it leads to Catherine o'hara who is like kind of so good she's kind of early on i think being a little bit more natural but by the time she gets to the show she's like she's like i can't wait to see the president like she screams (laughs) every fucking line it's so good it's like a peek into i mean obviously in sctv she played manic characters previously but like it's a peek into like uh moira rose and her future more un un, uh like unhinged characters even though in this she's like a fairly normal person who just has a little bit of a little bit of uh, delusions of grandeur one a little bit of a like a um She's she's incorrectly awed by her husband's ability, and her, her husband Fred Willard is obviously a little more natural in that he's just you know he's 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 doing Fred Willard stuff, and so it comes across as natural, even if it's not particularly good acting or anything like that. Oh my god, I love it. They talk about she talks about him getting giving her feedback. Um, oh my gosh, it's the funniest yeah. fucking thing in the entire world. So like yeah, the the well yeah, most of the notes. I mean, the notes are for us, but most of the notes are. You know, are about your performance, which affects both of us or something. <laughs> I, I didn't write it down, but she is like <laughs> Catherine O'Hara can slip by you in this movie as not like because she's not as big as a lot of other characters. After watching this movie 20 times, Catherine O'Hara, uh, surprised that we're going to come back to a few times through this month. Catherine O'Hara by far is the not just the best performance, but I think subtly the funniest performance. Her ability to sing off key which we're going to hear again next week is unparalleled uh i hate to jump ahead and steal something that our guest says next week uh but liam haber who will guest with us on best and show described it perfectly that she knows how to sing wrong the exact right way um and uh, i like that is that is exactly right she also like the more rose stuff is such a great call the way she just is so overloaded by the notes that Fred Willard is giving her and stuff like that, that her performance is like not just unnatural, it's like an alien came down and it's like, like, yeah. and you can tell she's just been coached to death by each word and stuff like that. And like, I will also say that her bangs are doing an amazing job. Um, They're the funniest bangs in movies. Great bangs. Um, 
It's just like eight strands of hair standing straight up. I love it. it makes me laugh every single time. Uh, but she's she's so good in this movie. Yeah, there's there's a few moments uh, of Sheila uh, in this because uh, Ron and Sheila are the couple, and it's it's uh, they're kind of like a beautifully uh, incompetent couple where like they seem to have they wear sweatsuits. They seem to have something figured out. However, there's a lot of stuff happening off camera that is clearly like dark. And the best yeah. the best line reading about the thing I was just talking about, this thing fucking killed me. Like I had to pause the movie or no, sorry, I had to jump back like a full minute because I was laughing so fucking hard. Um, is um, she's talking about Ron giving her notes and she goes, he's, he's teaching me to, to change my instincts or at least ignore them. And then they cut <laughs> away immediately. And I could not stop fucking laughing. I missed the entire next scene. It was so fucking funny. This, I got to tell you, like, um, I, I Spinal Tap and Best in Show have my five, five star ratings. This movie has my four and a half star rating. And it's only because it's up against those two classics that it's not. It's But, like, I laughed, even just rewatching it for the show. I laugh so much at this movie. This movie is so fucking funny. And, like, it's not quite at the Best in Show level um i do think it makes me laugh more in general than spinal tap i I think spinal tap is a better movie i love it more than this movie but like for sure like out loud bursts of laughing for movies that i've seen more and more times i think guffman gets me i want i want to talk like and there's so much like everything is so seeped in it but like i i want to name a couple parts that i find just fucking hilarious before we move on to mascots or whatever else but um I like the whole thing about him for his second play doing backdraft is so goddamn funny for me. And the fact that he burns down the theater and then it gets referenced constantly throughout the movie is like a great running joke. No one seems that annoyed by it, which is also uh, very funny to me. Like instead, people keep reaching back like when he's demanding that the town give him $100,000 and they're like – um, they're like, what are you talking about? You don't need any money. Look at Backdraft. You took a couple cinders and burned down a theater. <laughs> like, they're using it as motivation for for why he doesn't need money. Is uh, I don't know why, but that is so goddamn funny to me. I love the part where Corky and Bob Balaban are fighting. And Bob Balaban keeps saying things at different volumes that Corky gets angry at. And finally, he's just like, well, just talk like a normal person. <laughs> <laughs> that like that idea of like someone is telling you something you don't want to hear and so you just over obsess about the way they're saying it st- instead of having to deal with what they're um what they're saying uh obviously we mentioned you are you are bastard people i just hate you uh you are bastard people i love when johnny quits the show and he's like i just hate you and i hate your ass face um <laughs> that's that is that is uh similar to the 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 ass face thing and the bastard people are both clearly christopher guest giving himself a lot of <laughs> fuck around time while he's just talking to yeah. nothing like i mean i guess he's talking to the phone when he's talking to johnny but he's it's just a a, a one shot of him talking to the city council and he could go on forever. No one has oh, to do yeah. anything else in that shot. And I wonder how much footage there is of Corky just gradually escalating until he's yelling. And then he calms himself down and then he does another take where he's just improving. Yeah. Like, I want to know how much fucking footage there is of uh, the 
three or four times Corky has a, a meltdown. Yeah, uh, it's always great, though, but he does find that perfect. Uh, again, you're right, probably hours of him doing it. But each time, at least in editing, he finds the perfect turn of phrase that uh, I I remember the bastard people line like wrecked me the first time I saw this movie, like had to pause just to get my senses back. It was so goddamn funny. Um, there's a great audition where one of the old guys in town does a does a monologue from Raging Bull. Um, oh, yeah. so, did, you, did you fuck my sister? So, it's the only. It's the only. It's the only uh, f words in the whole movie. Oh, like, oh, this oh movie, and he does. And he does both parts. He does the Joe Pesci and the Robert De Niro. He does parts. both parts. That <laughs> that is the difference. Hold on, that's the difference between uh, effectively maybe PG and and R rating is that there's a, there's just a scene where. <laughs> Where this old guy with no in it, like no uh he puts no emphasis on any word. He's just like, I'm gonna do a scene from the movie from Martin Scorsese's Raging Bullet. You fucked my wife? Did you fuck my wife? No, I didn't fuck your wife. How could you say that? Yes, you did, you fucked my wife. Like it kills me every time. And like that that like that ten seconds is the R rating in this movie. It reminds me a lot of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, which is essentially a PG or a PG thirteen rated movie, except the part where Steve Martin is like, "I want a fucking car," um, and it's like, it's like, but but it's worth that scene is so good that like that is worth the R rating to have that one moment of like twenty. 20 fucks in a row, and I, I I think maybe this one is not quite on that level. But, like, it's worth it because that scene is so good. <laughs> it's so fucking good. The, all Why the auditions are great both? because, like, yeah. um, uh, with with Libby, Libby May, who's uh, Parker Posey's character, she performs Teacher's Pet. And uh, you can tell that yeah. – here's, here's the thing. I actually have a little bit of tr- trouble reading Corky in some of these scenes. Because, yeah. like, I have a hard time reading if Corky is genuinely impressed or if he's horrified. But this is the one sequence where <laughs> Corky is clearly, like, super impressed with Libby May. And it's just Parker Posey being adorable. Like, her... Yeah. her uh, Teacher's her, pet! Yeah, her, her... She's not like she's, like... She's not, like, uh, blowing this song out to be something huge. She's just like, I know all the words and I know how to yeah. do the splits. Like, that is, that yeah. is her audition. It's not that it's she, great. like, knows how to hit the high notes. It's not that she knows how to turn this thing into her own, like, interpretive, you know, like people do with the national anthem. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it, 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 and then Alan Pearl's thing is, like, a snapshot into... Uh, his his horrifying future, um, but because at this point he's just like oh, he, does, Al- he does a remix. Yeah, Al- he does a he does a medley of songs medley, where he goes yeah. and, and then he'll he'll uh, he'll just like keep going through like old show tunes. Hold standards. on, yeah, countdown races, sing these songs. He really gets people going though. They get uh, because they get he has excited. energy and he's comfortable performing. And so Corky's like, we absolutely have to have him. Um, that Alan guy. Uh, the last thing I'll mention is, you know, how uh, we, we talk about this, I know, next week. I think we probably talked about it even previous weeks. The way certain phrases strike you as so funny and then they also end up just as part of, like, the way that you talk to people. The the part where – so there's a joke in this that Christopher Guest or uh, Corky uh, wants to make sure that everything is period – uh, period specific so that Eugene Levy's character when he's playing uh, playing uh, Blaine Fabian 
uh, couldn't wear the glasses that he's wearing. And uh, which is a good good sight gag when um, he's uh, delivering a line as Blaine Fabian about like how well his vision is. And obviously he has like these what I what I. I, I've actually read that that might be actually true to some extent that he that when um, Eugene Levy uh, uh, wore glasses, I think he may have got LASIK that like he, his eyes did cross to some extent without the glasses on. But maybe that's uh, either a joke or incorrect. But um, when he's bringing this up that Eugene Levy uh, should wear the glasses, he says <laughs> he says, uh, OK, well, I see a couple problems with that first. Contrary to popular opinion, I don't see too well without my glasses. And there's something about someone saying contrary to popular opinion about something that no one has ever had a popular opinion on. Um, but him trying to like – that's so funny. Like the idea of just saying something about so, so personal and, and pre- prefacing it with uh, contrary to popular opinion is uh, something that has both stuck with me and has made my way into my um, – into my into my personal speech sometimes when I'm not even being funny like just like contrary to popular opinion uh, you know I, I do have to stop a lot when we go on long road trips <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um I think the, the the Ron the Ron moment like another moment that makes me laugh a lot is is uh, Ron and Sheila out to dinner with uh, Alan and his wife. Oh yeah, and that's like a moment where like it's I'm both torn because it's incredibly funny, but like I kind of did just want like a sweet moment between these two couples that like have a lot and also almost nothing in common. Um, yeah, like they have none of the important stuff, but they have a lot of the other stuff in common. Um, and then uh, Ron is talking about. It's such a great Fred Willard thing because it's like, because <laughs> eventually, eventually Christopher Guest realized that Fred Willard is best as this big blowhard who will just yeah. say whatever and has no filter. Like yeah. that's because he has this big announcer voice and he's just, he's just great at that. Um, but in this movie, he adds a bit of nuance to it that he never adds again, which is that like, uh, and because in the pre- next three movies, he's basically playing the same character. Um, it, it, it's that he's like a little embarrassed by his wife gets really loaded. Sheila gets really loaded at, at Chinese <laughs> dinner. And she's talking about how he had to get a penis, uh, penis. Reduction surgery. Yeah. Yeah. And he's kind of embarrassed about it. Like he starts off being a little proud and then he's like, well, Alan is a doctor. I'd like to show you my penis. And then, <laughs> and then, uh, as the scene goes on, he gets more and more ashamed about it because she's just airing their dirty laundry about this operation that, like, you're not really yeah. sure how they landed on it. Like, that, that, that sort of about peek behind the curtain on their clearly like fucked up relationship. Uh, you know, functional, but also there's some serious dysfunction in there. It, yeah. It's just like it's it's. It's one of the funniest sequences, and it's not just because they keep saying uh, penis enlargement. It's also a really good example of something that Guest continually gets, I think, wrong. Is like, uh, and actually a really good contrast to what we're about to talk about mascots. So, like, it, Fred Willard having a secret about the only time he's ever left the town and being embarrassed about, like, that he had to get a penis reduction surgery. And I always kind of took it as, like, he had to get it because he was causing his wife pain, but he was kind of proud of that he had a huge penis, I guess. And so, like, he's a little ashamed that, like, you know, even though he did something that was good, i.e. probably through a lot of arguments and fights, like, he doesn't like bragging that his penis is smaller than it used to be, right? Like, that's 
That's why that's why it's a secret is how I took it. 100%. Uh, which did, um that is such a funny dynamic and like it's that idea of attaching something odd and weird about like who a person is or their body or that kind of like something that you should normally shy away with with comedy which is like don't make fun of like the way people look or the way people like things that people can't change about themselves and it's able to find some comedy there whereas like in mascots one of the jokes of ed bagley jr is that he has like a micro penis and it's amazing how un- – like, Ed Bagley Jr. does a really good job with some of the little lines and he, like, barely puts it over the plate. But it kind of shows you a tendency of guests that, like, he he loves attaching those little things to people. You know, the two, the two left feet thing, the um, – you know, uh, all those all those sort of, like, physical stuff that come up. And he, like, loses whatever – he really, he really kind of loses the thread there of like where it's funny in this case, and where it just becomes kind of mean and lazy. Um, and I feel like that happens even with like, you know, if you look at Corky to, um, you know, the joke at the end of Mighty Win and stuff like that, and some of the like gay and homophobic jokes and mascots, like, and where Corky ends up in mascots, like you almost have this like he he loses even the he loses the thread of like how to at least make something funny if a little bit like uh offensive or stuff like that and just goes to hey what if i'm just shitty <laughs> what if you know like the marriage dynamic in uh even though i really love the mascot characters mainly cuz the actors are so funny like you know they almost have a fred willard catherine o'hara stuff um oh zach woods and sarah baker yeah like uh i mean <laughs> <laughs> good uh yeah i mean it's almost in, in a weird way it's parallel to like uh zach woods and sarah baker's character in mascots which is like a, a marriage built on one major you know on like this thing that they both enjoy which is like performing i'm not saying it's based on that but it's like a big part of their marriage um and there's some, some toxicity underneath and even though like zach woods and sarah baker are awesome and they do a good job with it and they have so many funny moments in mascots like it loses the subtle the subtlety thread and just becomes like about like a mean controlling wife and a cheating husband and like there, again there's there's like a humanity that like the, the pieces are there in the same way the micro penis to large penis is is there it's just like it it, it it like it 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 misses the 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 core. It, it feels empty, and, and as a result, it just feels so lazy in a way that even at its like most eye rolling, Guffman doesn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in here, it feels like a real dynamic that you're like because these people are spending so much intimate time together, they're getting a peek behind the curtain. And the next one, it's like. Let's just air dirty laundry out there. And also, I don't yeah. particularly care about this documentary format, so I'm going to just have the dirty laundry aired whenever I think it's funny, which is just – yeah. It, it it doesn't it doesn't jive with uh, the contract that we've made with Christopher Guest. Uh, the contract is um, – these are people that are putting on one level of performance, which is the social performance. People uh, – this is sort of something we talked about in Grizzly Man uh, last month. Oh, sorry, uh, two months ago. Four months ago? I don't know. It's something we talked two, about in Grizzly Man in the past. We sort of signed a contract with Christopher Guest that he was like, I'm going to make a fake documentary. 
And when we're watching a documentary, we're sort of expecting, uh, as we discussed in, in the Grizzly Man episode, you're sort of expecting a little bit of a performance. You're expecting someone to present their version of the story in the way that they've been telling it themselves um, over time. And it's it's a little bit of a performance, even though it's also, uh, it's, it's real people, quote unquote. And uh, one of the problems with mascots, and we'll discuss many of the problems, but one of the problems with mascots is that... Um, he doesn't set any real confines or, or rigors with how that documentary format actually is supposed to function and he breaks it. Yeah. So then it just becomes a uh, seemingly lightly improvised comedy with some really good jokes in it, but it doesn't follow, it doesn't have that that verisimilitude that um, his other films in this, this subgenre have wherein uh, we trust what people are saying because we've signed on to this social contract that we signed on to this, this movie contract that this is a real person. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, giving us a peek behind the curtain, though a very curated peek, um, in mascots, it's just kind of a movie that as it's sort of a, or a Boros deal where at this point when it was, it was just a snake in waiting for Guffman era. But by the time we get to mascots, it's, he's now been inspired by, um, by the office and, uh, other sort of, um, you know, the, the, uh, uh talking heads, uh, style, uh, sitcoms that had taken over the parks yeah. and recs and such. Uh, so yeah, let's 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 talk about mascots. Yeah, it just uh I mean so much of it just seems like um uh like on on paper it does seem like he's returning to his roots in that like okay, look, he hasn't done a mockumentary since 2003's Mighty Win. So we're talking you know, uh, 14 years removed. He obviously had had a couple notable failures during that time besides for your consideration, which was, again, him kind of taking the same, I think, structure and applying it to a narrative film uh, about the Academy Awards, which on paper sounds okay, but it doesn't really – it's it's bad. We're not – no reason to, to, to talk about it. And then Family Tree, which was an HBO show uh, starring – Oh, uh, shoot. I just put it away and I'm tired. Chris Dowd. Um, I did not have to open my phone and I'm happy about that. It came to me as I was pulling out my phone. Uh, starring an HBO show, a mockumentary style about Chris Dowd. I watched the first episode and didn't really like it that much and just kind of just, you know, 2009, a lot of things to watch on the old television set. So I didn't, I didn't watch more of it, uh, but it was canceled after one season. Uh, and, and this feels like he's going back to something that seems like an easy double at a minimum, right? Like, it's the mockumentary format. It's the same structure. It's the same type of uh, kind of uh, hyper-specific weirdos, I guess we'll call them, where they, you know, the idea of uh, mascottery and the obsession over, like, being a good mascot, which is, again, such a peripheral, unnecessary part of of sports that uh, you can understand where the people involved in it would have a um, uh, uh, self-aggrandized view of their import in the, the proceedings. Um, and, it, you know, it, it also is hitting the best in show thing of we don't have to explain too much. Everyone knows what a mascot is. Everyone knows what a, what a competition is. 
we we can just bring some funny people in there. And then, of course, to your point, Peter, there's a whole new generation of funny people that have like, uh, you know, honed their chops at this specific improvisational style and mockumentary style that they can bring in. And so, yeah, I mean, from that perspective, it's not a miss, but it's just kind of a lazy disappointment in a lot of ways. And there are some very funny jokes because there's some very funny people in here. But it it doesn't know how to integrate the 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 new group with the old group very well. So you have this like laborious and painful middle where um, you don't actually get to know any of the characters any better. But they've decided that each mascot before the competition brings in a mentor, um, which makes like no sense. In like, yeah, why wouldn't they be allowed mentors? Like what that would having that as like a competition allowance to help them is bizarre, but it's it, it's bizarre because it's there specifically to essentially insert the comedic actors that we've that we know from Christopher Guest movies into the movie, including um, Jennifer Coolidge and um, and Fred Willard, who uh, even his shtick's a little tired here, which is very sad to say, but he still has a couple good Fred Willard moments. And then Christopher Guest. Fred has Willard like, makes a bunch of little people jokes, and it's like, yeah, we didn't need to use this weapon this way. <laughs> this is such a well, again that that speaks that speaks to like again the level of laziness instead of him being fascinated at like a, a sitcom show that he was involved in, like in a mighty show or fascinated by all these questions about why dogs are, are doing competition. He's fascinated that like little people exist. And like, it's, it's, it, it feels like something that would have been eye rollingly uh, old in the sixties and seventies, let alone in a 2017 movie. Uh, but all these this this whole section kind of derails the movie. Uh, it stops getting to know the characters that we're trying to get to know in the same way that we have the other movies, so that there's some element of stakes. And also, like this is where they bring back Corky, right, to like mentor Parker Posey. Parker Posey, for some bizarre reason, she has the exact same accent. It would make narrative sense that this would be her chance to fame. She's a she's a, a mascot for one of these towns. Like that would be her a small town in Indiana. Um, again, the, the the flying they used to be called the flying squaws. Another joke that Christopher Guest just feels very lazy, um, and and she's she's not she's not Betty Sue from <laughs> Waiting for Guffman. She's like an exact same person who some but not the same who's. Uh, who who knows Corky and Corky comes in and he essentially his two jokes are that uh, Parker Posey's sister in this movie who's there that he's super horny for and Parker Posey's like oh really like you're horny for her oh yeah my penis is so erect right now which again like what there's so many things they could have done to make it sweet one that like Corky in the 20 years in the same way that thankfully uh, culture as a whole is like is causing not no reasons but less reasons to feel like especially in in smaller areas that you need to be closeted for your own protection stuff like that like that he could embrace that or that it was a reunion between these two people who uh you know even though they didn't achieve their fame 
or their story. They're able to stay in each other's lives through this silly thing. And instead it like even throws those what seem like putts out the door. And instead the joke is that he's still closeted and they make it more explicit than they ever did in anything for Guffman, which is just, we've never seen his wife. He talks about his wife, not like him going, I have an erection for you, lady. And everyone going, really? You're, you got an erection here, Corky? Like, it's so, like it's it's dumb. And, like, it's Fred Willard comes in to make little people joke. Like, oh, so parking on two of those. Uh, parking yeah. on Parker Posey. Um, wouldn't it make the ending of Waiting for Guffman so much less sad? If she had somehow... If this was, if this was her ending? If yeah. If somehow she 100%. had navigated her way to a... Is it a women's college? Uh... Yeah, women's college that she got to go to, that she attended, still got to be the mascot, and had a familial relationship. Yeah, that, she had. Yeah. She ended up finding. She ended up, you know, you know, she gets out of Dairy Queen. She ends up finding a way to perform, and she ends up writing these weird avant-garde performance pieces because it's like a. I think it's like a liberal arts women women's college. I think that's part of the joke. Um, and then. Uh, the idea, and then she seems so happy and liberated to like get to practice her art, like win or lose. Yeah. She has family that loves her, that she gets to uh, 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 dance and stay limber and like be like active as she gets yeah. older. Um, and and ends up doing something altruistic next to her sister. But, at the but end. something, yeah, and something that's like within the bounds of her. Yeah, her, her possibilities, right? Because it, it, like that wasn't the point about uh, uh, Libby May. The, the point a little bit about Libby May was not like she's uh, un, untapped talent. The point about Libby May, May is that she's charismatic and sweet and deserves better because everybody deserves she, better than she, she needs a reason labor. to exist outside of working the dairy. Yes, yes, she deserves. She just deserves better, um, and she has ambitions, and she deserves to be able to chase them. Um, and everyone in this country should be paid more so that they can go chase their ambitions, and then if they fuck up, they can go. Okay, Okay, I'm going back to my job that still pays me enough that I can, yeah, I can thirty dollars build up my yeah. savings. Um, so, uh, but then the Corky thing is particularly depressing because how much sweeter would it be if Corky came back as a cameo and Corky was like an out and proud uh, yeah. gay guy, and the jokes all of a sudden are something new. The jokes all of a sudden are more about her performance and him trying to work her avant-garde performance up against his expectations, which are like he made a backdraft music. He made a musical about about uh, Blaine. He made like yeah, he like he he got most of his dance moves from that musical from getting into the headspace of crisscross. Yeah, yeah she, he's not he's not yeah. an, he's not like an artiste. Uh, yeah. He's just someone who loves Broadway and the theater. And like, how much how much sweeter would it have been if he had not, you know, he had softened up on the accent and had just played like a gay man with dignity. Obviously, the preference is that a gay man plays that role and that he plays it with dignity and is not written as a as a, a offensive stereotype. But you can't come back and have Corky still be in the closet, contribute almost nothing to this role, and then just expect us to swallow that as if we're like, that was a cute cameo. Like, no, that's fucking grim, yeah. man. Nobody wants that. It's so grim. And again, like, my point is that, like, they make it like the at the very least waiting for Guffman has some subtlety around it where people you know don't ever question it and some of it I, I I think is a little bit true to life and that there is a element of that quirky being gay hasn't occurred to people 
because they they just don't think that that's a thing. They don't think about that as a as as something that exists in the world, and so it doesn't occur to them, even though it's the obvious or quote unquote obvious, you know, conclusion. Um, and like that's somewhat funny, and again, feels somewhat true to life uh, in like small town rural areas in like the eighties and nineties and stuff like that. Um, but even they weren't. No one made like that explicit. Like again, it's just so. It, it was there was a measure of like subtlety and heart around even like a, a lazy uh, closeted gay character played by a straight guy joke here like the like that part where he turns to Parker Posey's sister and is like oh yeah I have an erection and Parker Posey's like really you do oh yeah my penis is very hard like who thought that is like funny on any level like why would that be the beat and it's like. You know, it's so easy to Monday morning quarterback all that stuff because it's like, oh, you could have given us like it wouldn't have made mascots a better movie. Well, actually, I disagree. I'm going to take that back. It would have made mascots a somewhat better movie. It would have made a great movie. But like give us some closure on a character that we loved and see a little bit of growth and maybe even like some apologia to to where uh, him just being a gay stereotype character instead of like doubling down making a clone of a character who needed a, a happy ending that you're somewhat denying her only to give this new stranger that we essentially spend almost no time with uh, because we're so focused on letting Fred Willard do his thing. And like, it, it's such a tear, like the structure on paper is the same, but it just is like, it's so committed to, to including the the guest uh, repertoire without actually making them the stars in the movie that it ends up like hurting both the new and the old cast. Yeah, I mean she does have one just one great thing going. I think I think in general Parker Posey comes off well in this. Like that's the reason I had fond memories of this. Not fond, it not fully fond, but like some fond memories of this is that I think Parker Posey uh, comes off pretty well in this, and also Cindy Babineau is like. An all-time great character name. Cindy Babineau. Come on. You can't beat that. But I, I do think that, like, your assessment is correct. That, like, this is just sort of um, the old guard is kind of just doing a, a, a rehash of what they've done already. And then the new guard, more or less, um, is doing kind of half-inspired things. There's one set of characters that I really love and then they end up fucking them up too which is i actually mindy and mike murray which is played by zach woods and uh sarah baker um both excellent comedic actors who like have had many many chances to like be be emerge as comedic actors so i shouldn't be that surprised but it's it's amazing how they steal the rest of the movie away from characters and like they're so fucking funny that it's okay because they are the the Michael Hitchcock and, and Parker Posey invested show of this movie, which is just like, you don't actually care if it turns out all right for them. Yeah. But like the the you just love watching the the ridiculousness of them faltering, and then you get to follow some sweet kind of couples along the sides. Um and they're yelling at each other. It's so fucking funny. But the problem is at the end, it just turns into a domestic violence thing. And then the end of the movie ends with 
Zach Woods continuing to be horny for their babysitter, and it just leaves this Which like she hired, and they're clearly sleeping together, and they're ignoring it. Series and of then, series of yeah. sour tastes in your mouth, where you're just like, oh, maybe maybe this will will proclaim this meal, and it doesn't. The movie just ends on such a bummer in that sense. Yeah, it doesn't know how to do dysfunctional in the same way that Waiting for Guffman can with Fred Willard and, and Catherine O'Hara. And, like, which which is too bad because, like, um, I I think that, like, uh, Tom Bennett's story doesn't get much room. Or Tom Bennett, the actor, but his, his character's name is Owen Golly. Yeah, yeah. he's suppo- They're like, supposed to be the sweet couple. They're supposed to be the... Um, the the uh, um, Jerry and Cookie and Best in Show of this movie with with with, with the with the conflict not coming from like Cookie's past but coming from uh, living up to his dad's expectations past. of me. yeah yeah and, and like past. like that that is like a um, that's a very sweet that, that's like feels uh, feels it would have felt at home that like dynamic in one of these others movies I actually think like when uh, when uh, he he does do this uh, trick that his dad kept saying stop changing the act played by uh, Jim Jim Piddock who is the uh, the straight straight guy announcer in uh, in the best in show uh, uh, dog show along uh, opposite Fred Willard um, in this case straight guy. <laughs> To be clear, means the person who uh, doesn't get to be funny, not uh, not. Uh, although in a, in, a Mike, in a Christopher Guest movie, I guess you could you can see why I'm trying to be explicit. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, when that moment where he's like, you know, actually, like I was a hundred percent wrong. Like you did an amazing job. You've been better at this the whole time for me. I'm so proud of you. Like that moment legitimately gets me a little bit choked up in the way like a mighty wind would would get me choked up. I actually think like. Uh, Phil Mayhew, the janitor, is like who is like is kind of quitting a more successful job because he just loves uh, being a mascot so much. And like the awkward exchanges when he goes to visit the high school and no one knows who the fuck he is outside of his 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 mascot costume. But he's asking all these questions like he's part of the team. He misinterprets like um, him going and, um, uh, you know, like. Oh, I, I caught up with an old friend on Facebook and he misinterprets that. Like all – like those – those even both those characters that I think generally work more than they don't, they're not given any time to breathe because this this 80-minute movie devotes 25 minutes to the mentorship program that is just there for tired jokes from people who uh, either should have been – they should have made this movie around or shouldn't be in the movie even if they're people that I generally love. And so like you kind of see where like, man, there's germs of things that could have been a better movie here but because you have some good characters but it's just like – he's like, well, I can't not have Jane Lynch and Ed Bagley Jr. and Bob Balaban. So what if I give one of them a micro penis and one of them uh, – you know, found God through donkey stuff, and and I, but I'm not going to give them any time to do any of that stuff. They're just going to derail the movie, f- and now none, most of the other characters don't mean anything to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that this movie is is sort of where the uh, his sins from the previous movie come uh, yeah. to roost. But um, it makes me realize that in Mighty Wind, his his attachment to sincerity and having a very sweet moment is not a sin. <laughs> that like I wish that that sincerity had been uh, maybe doled yeah. out more evenly throughout his previous movies. Um, 
and that this movie is like, oh, you didn't like when Mighty Wind was super sweet, and I actually uh, expressed a genuine affection for folk music. Uh, uh, fuck you. Um, I'm going to make a cynical, mean movie. And I do think, like, again, I don't know where some of that comes down from from Levy's writing credits, but it, it, it's hard not to view Best in Show, Guffman, and A Mighty Win, and then, and then, which has Levy as co-writer for all of them, and then watch this movie and feel like it's it's all the worst ten- not all of them but a lot of the worst tendencies of guest without the without the heart and without finding the clever skin uh, spin that you can't help but wonder like how much levy's efforts were felt it almost reminds me a little bit of like you know i i love the early wes anderson movies and i've actually really come along to life aquatic but you know there was that thing where it's like man life aquatic didn't do t- too well and Darjeeling Limited maybe like his worst movie and then you realize like Owen Wilson stopped co-writing for him and for a while there was a little bit like oh is Owen Wilson the secret sauce that makes the Wes Anderson movies work and obviously then he you know he does Moonrise Kingdom he does Grand Budapest Hotel and he kind of finds his footing and you know I can't you can't help but wonder in the same way like is Eugene Levy the reason that we got this thing that almost feels like a a, a carbon copy of a Christopher Guest movie that we are mockumentary that we've known so well but not quite right in a lot of different ways. Yeah, yeah, possibly, possibly, because there is some some piecing heart piece of the heart there, and that 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 sounds about as right as as anything that I can come up with. There's some missing piece of heart here. Yeah, there's 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 a few things missing. Yeah. And again, I mean, Eugene Levy didn't stop writing and creating. He co-created and wrote a lot of and like kind of served as showrunner, especially in the early years of of Shit's Creek. And we, you know, with his son, yeah, he gave a ton of fucking... really good feedback to him. It sounds like from I watched the Shit's Creek. It's not, you also did the the making of yeah. Shit's Creek uh, yeah. documentary, and it, it it sounds like Eugene Levy provided and, and and Catherine O'Hara provided a lot of feedback in the early season, which made yeah. that show go from hey, this is a pretty cute comedy. I love the cast to oh, this is one of the best sitcoms of the past 20 years. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there is a little bit of like not to – I know it's just a random theory based on seeing movie. I mean, it could just be that, you know, Christopher Guest is older and he lost his touch. That's That happens to artists that we love as well. But like when you see uh, almost like, uh, you know, contemporaneous examples of Eugene Levy's writing, it's like, oh, okay, well, one is working for me. Uh, as much as anything ever has, and one is not working for me at all. You you can't help but wonder if um, some of the reason that made uh, made those the waiting for Guffman and and the other stuff we're going to talk about this month so special uh, is is it was was um, was from Eugene Levy, who obviously gets a little bit more of I think of a short shrift and at the very least like writing and creation of these movies yeah yeah and and what's also interesting here in terms of like incoming dna is that uh between mighty wind and uh this movie mascots in 2016 christopher guest did a um series uh called family tree um do you know i talked about it on this episode right yeah 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 yeah. but that is where that is where like 
Um, he, he, he ended up getting, uh, some of the other featured players. Like we talked about like Chris O'Dowd and stuff, but like, and he used some of his old guys like Michael McKean, but like, yeah, the, uh, I watched about like, uh, six episodes of it and okay. it's, 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 it's funny. It's cute. But like, uh, you know, it, it was at least taking him in a new direction. It didn't feel like a retreat the way that mascots does. And yeah. mascots feels like a cynical retreat, like where it almost felt like Christopher Guest, someone, someone like rousted him from a deep sleep. And he was like, they were like, you can make a movie for Netflix. You don't have to try that hard because if you, yeah. if people don't like it, they'll immediately forget about it because it's debuting to Netflix. And he was like, all right. Yeah, I mean, he, in some ways, he's his Kevin Bacon character in um, the big picture, like just saying, fine. Yeah. You're going to give me money to make this? You win, Hollywood. Also, we didn't talk about it. Chris O'Dowd, one of the worst parts of Mascot, his character never, like on paper, could be very funny. I, I don't think it's ever funny. Uh, extremely. He's, he's terrible. Extremely uh, ill-formed. Um, it's something that, yeah. like, I don't know if that was a editing room issue or if Chris O'Dowd is not an improv guy because I don't I don't think Family Tree. He's very funny. I don't think Family Tree was, like, improv the way that these movies are, um, which is part of the reason I didn't want to really sneak it in this month. I kind of just wanted to catch up with it a little bit. Um, and, uh, like... That paired with, in 2016, like, right before presidential election, we got this, like, influx of just, like, a very sweet little movie. And then there's a scene with them talking about the political correctness of the, the term squaw. And it's like, everybody is an idiot. Like, um, immediately, uh, Ed Bagley Jr.'s character is like, that's like saying the C word or the N word. And then, like... This, like, weird escalation of people being unable to talk about this stuff. Um, just, it feels like an old man just shadow boxing. Like, it feels... A hundred percent, because, like, because they're going to kick Parker Posey out because 30 years ago that was the name of the mos- mascot, even it though she had nothing been <laughs> And no, it comes to nothing, but it, it you're a hundred percent right. It feels like this is what they do now. And it's like, again, it's... Satire and parody comes from agreeing on what the truth of the situation is. Like, the idea of canceling a person who – like, like get, getting someone kicked off the team or they kicked off the competition because the school that they're representing today 30 years ago had a different mascot – that would could potentially be seen correctly so as offensive to some people is like no one is saying that like that you know they changed the name of of uh, Washington's football team um they're not like going back through and kicking people out of the hall of fame because they like used to be on a team named uh what it was named right like it's it's like it, – it's you can't have – we talk about this all the time with like right-wing comedy. Like satire has to agree on a common like situation of facts for you to turn it and make fun of it. And if you are representing a, a, a version of the truth that doesn't exist and then trying to make jokes off it, it doesn't work because it's like you're – like what's the joke that you're no one would ever think like this yeah 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 i think that that kind of points us towards where we kind of need to go which is the end like what's funny is that like talking about mascots i actually i 
I actually want to go down and lower my star rating because I this think is, I may have given right. it three I just, stars. I'm thinking about it now. This rarely happens with us on the show. Or, but like yeah. after we talk about a movie, I'm like, you know, that three stars was a little nice. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, because the rich, I mean, worth noting originally why we were going to do it is that we thought like, hey, it makes sense to do it as part of this, you know. Christopher Guest mockumentaries that was a return to form has a relation to waiting for Guffman let's rewatch it and do it as part of this and also I think our take Peter was that like it's not great but you know it's it's um it, it got a little bit too much guff for critics and as we've been talking about especially as it relates to a, a great movie waiting for Guffman I find myself more annoyed with it and uh yeah uh, it's it's bad now. Yeah, I think. yeah. So I think the one nice thing I'll say about it um is that it does have a very sweet ending, and that feels yeah. like that's that's guest just um that that's guest just approaching the end of a project that he wasn't particularly invested in, and then all of a sudden he's like, I don't have the heart to do anything bad to these characters, who are also <laughs> in, a, in a fake contest. Uh, unlike in Best in Show and, you know, Mighty Wind and Best in Show and in, uh, uh, you know, Waiting for Guffin. Well, even at Mighty Wind, theoretically like a label getting a few old bands back together could be a yes, real thing. Yes, exactly. Um, but like, unlike those, this is a fully manufactured idea. Um, which which it it does it didn't need to be like if they were trying to do like some level of consistency like there's this league of like collegiate or something like that but instead you have like a random high school mascot from one school in L A versus a horribly offensive like school from Tel Aviv. <laughs> Uh, the school itself isn't offensive. The mascots they decide to use is like, like, why is there like, there's eight mascots. Some are doing college, some professional, some high school, some international. Yeah, like, like did they work through, did they work through some sort of mascot competitions to yeah. get here before? Because that's how yeah. Best in Show works. We get like a brief glimpse at Cookie and Jerry at uh, uh, um, some other terrier competitions. And this, I'm like, yeah. you telling me Chris O'Dowd's character made it through even one of these? Absolutely not. He barely makes it through yeah. this one. Why is he? But he's a, a quote-unquote a professional hockey mascot versus, like, you know, Jerry or whatever, the plumber who's just like a random local L.A. high school mascot. Like, again, it kind of speaks to the care that Christopher Guest used to put into his stuff of letting you understand the, the, the weird world that you're about to go in and the rules of it. So, like... Even though the other things were more realistic, you get to know, like, here's why waiting, well, here's why they're having a Seska Centennial. Here's what the play means to them. Here's the people who are putting on the play. Here's the music director. Here's the little, you know, this is just like, here's six people to the mascot competition. It's, yep. I mean, again, not, just reinforcing, it's it's lazy and it's, um, and again, he's, maybe he's this Kevin Bacon character. He's like, this is what you fucking people want. I'll make it about a haunted ghost bikini team, uh, which is a reference for this one person listening who saw uh, the big picture. Peter, what are we doing next week? Next week, we're going on to Best in Show, um, which is, uh, I think, for our money, the Best in Show of this month. I would call it the Best in Show, yeah. Um, it wins its uh, Best in Breed. Yep. Uh, it wins its uh, Best in Class. Best in class, a phrase I know well. And then it wins uh, its uh, best in show of the month. 
would never argue with anyone that best in class is not the second stage of that? Absolutely not. That's not something you would do. Um, and the movie no. genuinely seems very interested in capturing the dog show. So why why wouldn't you know? Um, and then we're going to end the month with... A Mighty, Mighty Wind is blowing. Mighty Wind is blowing. It's blowing you and me. Um, and I'm very excited to uh, keep on keep on going through these guest movies with you because even though Mascots was not a delight, uh, even with my issues with Guffman, it was just, it's just like a delight to have these like it's 80 so minute comedies that fully understand what they are and and, and are willing to just like uh, like offer us a, a nice like menagerie of, of weirdos to play around with for a little bit. And right now. Uh, that's kind of what we all need. We need we, yeah. we need uh, to remember that the outside world is uh, full of strange weirdos and we just need to find them a little charming to, to enjoy ourselves a little bit more. So uh, I'll see yeah. you next well, week, Aaron. Yeah, contrary to popular opinion, I need to go to bed, Peter. Time to take a trip to see the exciting places in the galaxy. For you see, nothing ever happens on Mars. No sports or entertainment or screen. Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs) 